I was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot in a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars scans. Wish I had a million dollars. Wish I had a million albums. Wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. A late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish. And every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. And every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. And every time we love and it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels. I wish I had a time machine. Wish I had a better rhyming scheme. Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from my lime bean. That I could spread my wings. Yeah. I wish that I had seven limbs. Yeah. That way I'd hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing for the better thing. Hello, cats and kittens, and welcome to the next episode, the latest episode of The Debrief. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray, and today we are going to talk about the bipartisan panel I assembled for today's episode, all about whether there needs to be a COVID reckoning. I had my libertarian co-host from Rising, Robbie Suave, on to talk about it with Walker Bragman, who is a journalist who's been covering this and, you know, is very prominent on my feed as someone who is pushing back against some of the um, uh, policy choices from the Biden administration to withdraw what supports have been extended for people to do some COVID avoidance and mitigation uh, you know, privatizing the response, ending the ability to request uh, free tests, things like that. And I wanted to get to the bottom of what I have been experiencing as an extraordinary amount of dissonance in how we talk about these things. What I experienced in the conversation over at Rising is a very different type and temper of conversation that I have more broadly in left and liberal spheres. And it is very rare to get two people who are willing to engage about this issue in a way that isn't kind of hyperbolic and super angry. And so I was very grateful to both gentlemen for joining me and having that conversation uh, today. Uh, Additionally, you know, I thought it was really interesting to get a chance to talk to Robbie in a longer format because I do think that Sometimes the shorter, I mean, rising is longer than most cable media hits, but the shorter formats, I do think, um, you know, they flatten nuance. And I think Robbie was a little surprised the extent to which there were things that he says that I agree with or at least want to know more about. But there's not a lot of room for kind of a blanket agreement on a show like Rising, because certainly I don't mean to (laughs) co-sign everything that he'll be saying in a given you know, response. So I was really appreciative to get to have that debate with him in a longer format. I'm interested to see what you guys say, but I also can't resist that I watched last night a segment on Bill Maher about student debt with the one and only Amy Klobuchar and Rob Reiner, who, who knew is kind of a mensch and did a good job holding his own in this segment. So I want to play a little bit of that. Uh, no pressure to talk about student debt. I understand that people are student debted out, but then I will start taking questions and we can get right into it big thing that the administration did now college loans this it's interesting i know there's people who have college loans 
There are other people in America, the vast majority of Americans, didn't go to college. And they don't have college loans. So they're a little pissed about this. They're like, you know, there are plumbers out there saying, well, why don't you pay off my truck instead? Because that's what my money went to, my life went to. It's amazing to me when I read in the paper today how many Democrats are divided about this. They're not completely behind this idea that Joe Biden is paying off people's student loans. So where are you on that one? I think, you know, during the presidential, I was the one that said rich kids, we shouldn't be paying for their college. You just can't staple a diploma for free under everyone's chair. Part of that is I think we need to focus on apprenticeships and filling the hard to fill jobs. That being said, Bill, this is more targeted than a bunch of the proposals that were out there. Um, And 87 percent of the money goes to people uh, that are making less than seventy five thousand dollars a year. You've got it will help nurses. It helps nurses. It helps teachers. It helps electricians. A bunch of people have community college loans. That being said, if I could wave a magic wand and do what I want to do, I would have actually tied it to the hard-to-fill jobs. We have 10 million job openings right now in our country, 2 million of them are in healthcare assisted living. So if people will go into those jobs instead of being like hedge fund managers, um, then we could actually put the uh, loan repayment help and have it connected to people going into the jobs that we need to fill. I think that would be a way you can do it. But I do think it's important for people to understand that this is a targeted program that he put out. Fifty years ago, 70 percent of good jobs required a high school diploma. Now they say 70 percent require a college degree. Mm -hmm. So I know this is like supposed to address income inequality, but it kind of does the reverse because it's the people who have college degrees. Yeah, but there are also... Parents of those kids who don't have college degrees who want their kids to be able to go to college so that they can have a better life than they did. And we have to address the, 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 the cost of going to college. I mean, I'm an old man, but when I went to college, you know, at UCLA, uh, it, it cost me $242 to go to school for a whole year. Now it's crazy how right, what you have to pay. And it's unfortunate. It's and a- it does target the, the, the kids that are most, uh, you know, most in need. But I keep saying on this show, no one's listening, but I keep saying... Well, you're, it's your show. I know. No, no, I'm just, saying, I'm just saying nobody, you know... Like, oh. Eventually, they follow my lead, but it, it takes, <laughs> takes years. A decade. It takes years yeah. and yeah. someone else to claim yeah. it. Anyway, but I keep saying it's not about affordability. Uh, yes, college is unaffordable. It's about making college more unnecessary. It's a giant scam. It's a consumer product that they're selling you as a golden ticket to be in the upper middle class. But they're not really getting any education. Did you go to college? Of course. Of course. Because that's what... And look at the job you have. You're a big-time guy and have your own show. (laughs) Would you have your own show with... Maybe you would. I don't know. Uh, Yes, I would. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I... I... No, I mean, actually, I mean... Yeah, but you wouldn't qualify for the loan repayment. (laughs) (laughs) Income. Yeah. I'm just saying, most jobs they do not really require. It's a scam. And I've, you talked about nurses. I've talked to so many nurses. My mother was a nurse. I still know many nurses that were friends. Okay, uh, administrators, teachers, they all have this complaint that at a certain point they need more education to, like, advance in their career, when really they know exactly what they're doing. They don't. It's just a way to make you go back to school. And I feel like 
education is to Democrats what tax cuts are to Republicans. They think it solves everything. Well, it's not just uh, upper education. You're also talking about K through 12. And that's something the Democrats have cared about forever. And you see uh, Republicans moving away from public education. That, to me, is where uh, the big the money should be going. And yes, there are people who should go to college. If you want to be a doctor, you want to be a lawyer, you want to do something that you you want to be in the space industry, you have to go to college. There are other jobs that you don't need college for. I think you and I have shared this view. We're not going to have a shortage of sports marketing degrees here. We're going to have a shortage of plumbers, electricians. We have a shortage of nurses, technology workers. And some of those jobs require high education. Some of them require apprenticeships. And we just got to meet people where they are. And that's why I'd like to tie it to the jobs that we need to fill. All right. I I loved about that clip that Bill Maher was such a right winger <laughs> that even Amy Klobuchar, who obviously was trying to stake her ground as the reasonable moderate centrist, kept having to check him from the left, pointing out that Bill Maher, of course, has a college degree. Well, Rob Reiner made that point. And Bill Maher, of course, wouldn't qualify for loan forgiveness because he makes millions and millions of dollars a year. And there's an income cutoff at $125,000. And Amy Klobuchar even had to make the point that whatever, some overwhelming percentage of the relief goes to people who make less than $75,000 a year and on and on and on. And I really loved Rob Reiner's points as well about how when he went to college, the cost of college was incredibly low. And Bill Maher even starts to make this argument. He's like accidentally starts to make our argument where he says increasingly jobs require a college degree, but he won't go ahead and just connect the dots. Okay, Bill Maher, it's your contention that the jobs that say they don't need degrees actually, that they do need degrees rather, actually don't need degrees. And therefore what, what is your policy to try to enforce jobs from requiring higher education. I agree. There are some jobs that require master's degrees in higher education that probably don't actually require it to do the job and on the job training is sufficient. And I think that it's ridiculous that so many jobs require master's degrees, et cetera, and still want to pay really low wages. That's of course that's true. But what's your policy to, to address that? Nothing. Oh, you just wanted to make, to make sure that even the job market is what it is and people's salaries aren't competitive and all of these jobs require college degrees that you only get to actually act that job market if you have rich parents that's your solution you know so i i just thought that clip perfectly encapsulated all of the ways in which people tell on themselves when having this conversation about student debt cancellation and i was so pleasantly surprised that rob reiner it was in there pulling punches for us or, or getting punches in for us and that even amy klobuchar as she tries mightily to undermine the true progressive thrust of this policy is forced because of the milquetoast, moderate nature of what Biden actually passed, to make the left's argument, make the left's argument. And and obviously, we have a really far way to go on this. And I'm about to do a follow-up episode with Asher Taylor ASAP about what the next steps are. But the reality is that this has put Democrats in a posture where most of them, and there's some outliers, Tim Ryan and a bunch of people have been saying a bunch of malarkey, but has put them in a posture where they actually have to make arguments that before were only made on the left in which and I know a lot of you saw a John Oliver clip from years ago that was circulating where he was ruthlessly mocking Jill Stein 
for suggesting that debt cancellation was a serious policy that people should be pursuing. You know, we have come a long way from there. And I just, even, even as we're about to like ramp up and keep pushing, I just wanted to take that moment to um, take a historical note of how far we've come, but let's get back to the topic at hand or whatever it is that you guys would like to discuss. Eric, you're up first. Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. Hey, Brie. Uh, so I'm going to actually kind of stay on the topic of student loan debt. Sure. Um, because I'm not sure if you caught it, but I listened to Bachia was on uh, on uh, Rising, and I, I swear I think she's an op. I, I I can't with her. It would like I can listen to almost every single person now on Rising and get something out of it. Even like Robbie, even um, the the female who's on Friday, even her, who's Emily. probably even mm-hmm. Emily, who's probably even farther away from my politics. I get her. Batia, I do not understand her. I think she's an op. She makes no sense. And like her radar on student loan debt and how it's like an attack against the working class. And I'm like, do you know what the working class is? Like, do you? Do you have any clue? Like, I really think she's, I think she really believes that working class people like to be dumb. Don't care about education whatsoever. Don't care about actually like having to pick up a book. Because in, I like, I know in the neighborhood I come to, which is a very heavily Caribbean American, mm-hmm. you could not tell your parent. I don't know any one of my friends who could sit there and tell their parents mm-hmm. who are like working class, lower income people, mm-hmm. I'm not going to college. You get kicked out the house. Mm-hmm. You get kicked out the house. Mm-hmm. So it, she just makes no sense. And another thing I wanted to point out is I saw the the guy you retweeted who posted, uh, who did like a, a, a thread about um, specifically graduate level debt. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And one of my issues that I have with people, you because you bring this up very well, they never deal with the point. Because they all talk about how working class people and poor people don't have X, Y, and Z. Poor people do not have access to lawyers because lawyers have so much debt that they yep. cannot help poor people. You have $250,000. Like when you get, people don't understand, when you get out of law school, if you did not go to the top law school, you are not making that much money. Correct. And because of that, you can't go to whether it be a poor urban area or a poor rural area and assist those people when they need someone to, to help them out because their wages are being stolen. Or when, you know, the uh, Amazon labor union, they need lawyers because they need to come at the Amazon or see, are they trying to do some horrible practice because they got to pay that, but they don't have the funds to really do that. We don't have lawyers now because they got to pay off such an exorbitant amount of debt. So when you sit there and talking about how student loan debt is uh, uh, directly um, against working class people, and actually you're arguing the reverse because you're saying that poor people, you don't deserve lawyers. So you don't deserve access to um, any type of criminal defense. So don't sit there. And that brings up another point, like mm-hmm. Olemi, who is a public defender. Mm-hmm. You don't have like public defenders overworked, uh, overburdened. Mm-hmm. Don't have the the same materials that you know uh, uh, other people, other lawyers will have who can hire a private lawyer. Mm-hmm. You're saying that poor people can have access to that. And the one but one that I really know about is doctors. I know a lot of my friends who become doctors, and I, they talk about it. Like you don't start making money when you're a doctor until like you're 45, mm-hmm. which means all that debt is just recruiting interest. Which means also means that by the time you're able to even touch your debt, really, you probably mm-hmm. doubled your, your the money you have to pay back. Which mm-hmm. means you 
You can't go into poor rural, because one of the biggest things that I keep constantly hear people talk about, there is no hospitals in rural areas. If you mm-hmm. live in a rural area, your nearest emergency room is like an hour, hour and a half out from where you live. That is directly involved. And you could people die because of that. People don't go to hospitals because of that. And people don't have these hospitals because doctors can, nurses can afford to have hospitals in those areas. And like they never deal with that fact and it annoys the hell out of me. It like, I want to hit them in the head. Like, talk about it. What are you doing? <laughs> Come through, Eric. Look, I can't add a single thing to that. You hit the nail on the head. A hundred percent. The only question people should be asking them, themselves, it's not, do you think doctors or lawyers or any of these professionals should get student loan cancellation? The real question that everyone misses is, do you think people from rich families who become doctors should pay more for their medical, uh, less for their medical degrees than do- people from poor families? Do you think people from poor families should have to pay more for their uh, JDs than people from rich families? And once you answer that question, consider what the implications are are for what fields these people go into and whether they're going to end up serving rich people so that they can pay off their loans or whether they're going to serve the communities that they came from. And the last thing I want to bring up, because I know you wanted to jump around today, so the last thing I want to bring up, two quick things. Um, Just like you said how Bill Maher almost made the point for us, Amy Mm -hmm. also almost made the point in that clip because she almost also talked about how, yeah, we need nurses and we need doctors and Mm -hmm. we need lawyers. Mm -hmm. So she like completely contradicted herself in that because we need all these things and the last thing i find that with particularly with batia and people who kind of and even so with robbie there they have a very like anti-intellectual view of the working class Mm -hmm. like the working class aren't intellectuals and don't aspire and don't like can't think about you know philosophy and 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 doesn't just you know pick up you know uh, you know neil degrison's random physics books or doesn't mm-hmm. care about, like, I talk to these people a lot. And, like, they care about many different facets. And they are intellectuals. And I would love, you know, I think it's because one of the things that we don't have time to really get into, but I think eventually we're going to have to have this discussion. I think you brought up one time is the philosophical arguments of why humanities are important. Mm-hmm. Like our uh, sociology, anthropology. Um, philosophy and so, these things are highly important because they may, they allow people to understand how we act as people, how we interact with communities within society, and it is important that we have some as a group just have some understanding of our interactions with each other, and those what the humanities does. And I hate how people look at the humanities and look at art and talk about how. They're just dumb, wasteful degrees. But at the same time, these people will sit there and talk about Ben Franklin. They mm-hmm. will talk about the Enlightenment movement. And mm-hmm. what do we all know about the every last one of those people were artists. Mm-hmm. And, and even in their own writing, put the art above the science. Put mm-hmm. the art before the visit. Like, like, what are y'all doing? And that, okay, that's all I have to say. They just, they, oh my, Eric. my head. Eric, I am vibing off of you right now is all I have to say. I'm just vibing because you're making my job easier. You're just taking over as host, and I'm 100% here for it. You're making all the points. I agree, agree entirely. I think there's something incredibly paternalistic, incredibly paternalistic and demeaning about the ways in which that cohort. And I got to say, I mean, you guys heard me talk, have this conversation with her on the show, so I don't feel like it's me, like, talking about it behind her back or anything, I, you know. She said on the show 
that she thinks that I am an elitist for thinking that people should have an equal opportunity to go to college because what they do is they reframe me saying, one, there's the reality that people who go to college get higher degree, uh, higher incomes, and I think everyone should have access to that. Two, there is a generic inherent value to going to college, and I think that anybody who wants to should be able to access that. And three, there is something extremely paternalistic and pretending like people uh, people are having um, are making these decisions based on their free choice, as opposed to the fact that they literally some people can afford it and some people can't. And you guys are all walking around having gone to college. You're gonna send your kids to college. Everybody that you date goes to college. Everybody that you fraternize with goes to college. And you're gonna sit here and pretend like I'm being elitist by saying everyone should have that opportunity if they want it. I'm not saying you should have to go to college. I'm not saying you're bad or inferior if you don't go to college. But you trying to flip that into saying that people who want you to have the opportunity to go to college are elitist is one of the, I'm telling you, the most craven, cruel, disgusting manipulations that I have ever encountered in a political space. It makes me want to throw up. So I haven't yet listened to Bates Raider. I saw it, and I chose um, peace today. Oh, <laughs> right. I, I know I'm going to have to listen to it because I suspect I'm going to have to do another student debt radar in response to all of the stuff that's happened over the past week. But I don't do radars except for on Wednesday, Thursday. So I didn't feel like I needed to choose violence for myself until I'm prepping on Tuesday night. Okay. <laughs> but I will be listening to it. And thank you. Eric. Look, I can play some of it right now. if People really want that as part of our journey. You guys just let me know in the comments. But thank you, Eric, for holding it down. You, no I mean, problem. you spoke nothing but truth just now. All right, keep the faith. Bide, what's on your mind this evening? Oh, shoot, I said I was going to skip around. Okay, I will skip around, but Bide, shoot your shot. Hey, what's going on? <laughs> I'm doing very Luckily, well. I'm, I'm, How have I'm you been? Okay, I'm good. I'm good. All things considered, it's been busy, busier these last couple of uh, weeks with work and everything, but... uh uh it's cool to uh see that big leo energy going on today in the, <laughs> today's episode of bad faith that was funny that was real funny uh yeah yeah know, i was i was I, amused I, by I, it I wanna talk about, <laughs> Go ahead. yeah yeah i want to talk a little bit about the the covid stuff um but you know eric going off like that just uh, just one last point to to kind of add to that there's there's this weird trend happening now when people talk about the working class, especially people more on the right or people who are more on the establishment of politics. Uh, and they talk about the working class like people talk about my black friend. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, it's the same energy. <laughs> it's the same sort of like, hey, well, I'm going to speak for this entire group that I'm not of, that I don't represent. And that actually a lot of my interests and my social networks are actually completely malaligned with. Yet they use them and weaponize their identity as like some sort of, they get some sort of like virtue out of the idea of, you know, persisting themselves or, or posturing themselves as, as the warriors for the working class. And, you know, you'll notice that it's not working class people who are talking like that. Because working class people don't have access to the same, you know, television shows and, and microphones that they all got. If they really cared about what working people had to say about it, how they felt about it, um, they do stuff like, you know, what Jordan Cheriton's doing, which is just going out to talk to people and just giving them a microphone and saying, hey, just you talk. Tell me about how this is affecting you. How is inflation affecting you? How is, you know, whatever affecting you? But they don't do that mm -hmm. because it's just another political weapon. And... I think with the, you know, like I, 
you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a lawyer and like the reason I chose the career path that I'm on right now is I was chasing money mm-hmm. because I was in debt mm-hmm. and I didn't feel like I had any options. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you do that and then you find yourself working at firms where, you know, sometimes people are treating you like shit, like you don't belong or they're, you find yourself in situations where, you know, you're a lowly associate and the firm is taking on some kind of client that mm-hmm. it probably should not. And yep. you, you don't have to work on the case, but forever now, your name's going to be associated with some dumbass decision that some rich asshole made. Mm-hmm. And you're, that's, that's the breaks, you know, those are the breaks and they, they work the hell out of you when you're a young associate, at one of these big law firms or whatever, right? They just, they really do drill you into the ground. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny that, uh, I became, you know, I, I, I went to become an attorney and tried to get a job, like a, a good paying job so I could pay off my loans. And that somehow made me into more of a socialist just by being in the shit yeah. because you see how much of a grind and how much of you, how much you are really just a billable hour yeah. to someone else. Uh, how much it, money yeah. can we make off of you? You know, like, um, but you know, that's, that's, that's a system and that's, you know, whatever, if it radicalized me, then yeah, it's I guess difficult. That's cool. I, I feel the exact same way. And it's hard because again, I'm me, so I'm inclined to draw my life experiences, but I also know that it's, you know, I am so much luckier than so many people. And I don't want the prominence of me and my voice in all of this art, you know, all of this discourse to make people think that it really is Ivy League students, but it's just that only 1% of people who get um, cancellation are Ivy League students. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm very sensitive to not wanting to skew the perception of who's, who this is helping. And to be clear, I do not qualify for this by multiple metrics. <laughs> so this really isn't about me. But I will say, I don't want to go so far into doing that that I – Miss out on the fact that I do think, you know, there's something unfortunate about that, not because of me personally, but because I do know so many like black professionals who are first generation college grads or at very least first generation um, grad students who did go to law school or did go to medical school or did, you know, pursue, uh, you know, a nursing degree or like friends who were social workers because they thought they want to give back to their community. And so much is drilled into us disproportionately, I think, compared to other groups that you have, you should go back and you should give back. All my friends, like we all know how I've been dating these public defenders. All of my exes, like they're all these people who came from really humble <laughs> beginnings, took out a ton of loans to go to college, including at state universities. They still took out loans and have debt from their state university and then went on to 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 uh, grad school got a ton of debt and still went back to their communities and have this huge thing hanging over their head for the campaign yeah. i interviewed malika jabali who is now um i forget her exact title but like a senior editor over at essence she's a, a radical a socialist she came up in like one of these like kind of diaper baby commie camp, like a black socialist community in Atlanta. Like she's like the real deal. And I love her and I love her politics. I'm so glad that there's someone like that over at essence now, but also I I talked to her for the Bernie podcast about how she has, I think she said half a million dollars in debt, you know, cause she, she, she wanted to do the right thing. She went to law school, Columbia law. I mean, like you're told to go into the best place you can get into. Everyone pats you on the head and tells you you've achieved something that no one else in your family has achieved. You get all this debt, mm-hmm. and then 
she says, well, I want to be a journalist. I want to do my passion. Like I want to, that's the way that I can contribute in the best way, not working for a corporate law firm. And there's absolutely no debt forgiveness. At least if you become a public defender or still working in a you know public interest legal job, you can get debt, you know, loan, the, a loan forgiveness program where your balance is growing and growing and growing. And it's a sort of Damocles over your head. And there's always the risk that the government won't come through and it's promised to pay it off. But technically you're not exactly. responsible for those payments. If you decide to go completely off the grid and stop practicing law, that's it. You're stuck. You're trapped in a legal career for the rest of your life. And that was the situation I was in as well. You know, I took a pay cut to go work for The Intercept that meant that I had to go on a longer repayment program. And that my loans, you know, it added an enormous amount in terms of interest payments that I was going to pay over the course of the the loan's lifetime. And are these the incentives we want to be setting up for people? I don't know. You know, it, it. It starts to feel, I know, I, I don't want to overstate the, the harm of it, but when your life's options are completely dependent on having to chase paper, when, when you're not allowed to chase your passions, when you're not allowed to really, I don't know, live life in a way that you can actually enjoy what you do, find passion, find art, find love, find all those good things that actually make life special. Um, it starts to feel like a weird sort of like trap, you know, like it's not, you know, and it's not, it's not indentured servitude, but it's not that in principle of what you actually have to do of the way that you actually have to limit your options. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really suffocating. It could be really constricting. And I don't want yeah. people to, especially when look as a society, we, we're not benefiting by having people who are too poor to afford health, you know, like healthcare and education when we need these people to find ways to contribute to society, when we need people to find ways to, uh, you know, like as a, we are a species that is dependent on one another, despite what a libertarian will try to have you thinking, right? Like it's, We've never done it all by ourselves, you know, like behind Elon Musk are, you know, hundreds of engineers and people who are making things work, who are the others. Uh, the people, a lot of the rocket technology that he's dependent on was funded by public research right. from the government, from NASA and everything, right? It's like, this is, you know, I, and we don't need to talk about Star Trek. But the idea is, you know, like if we're trying to get to Star Trek, that's something that you can't do as an individual, right? That's something that we do together. And having more educated people, or at least people who have the ability to uh, expand on their creativity and their knowledge base and their skill sets is going to pay back huge dividends to your society. And it's so weird that like, I don't know what Bacha, Ungar, whatever is, is you know, I, it's Sargon, or I don't, I don't know, Bacha, whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what her deal is calling herself a leftist and shit like that. But that shit makes me, that gets me hot. Like, what are you doing? Like, you cannot sit here and talk about, you cannot have a spike-based politics off of people trying to improve themselves and their situations if you're a leftist. Sorry, you can't do that. Like, and say that, look, the solution actually for the working class that you apparently speak for, Batya, which I don't know your background, but I'm guessing, (laughs) I don't know. I'm just get. I'm just guessing. Like you wouldn't do well in the parties that I've been at, right? But like, <laughs> I, I don't know like her background. But 
to think that she's somehow helping the working class by dragging other people down to all have to live in the shit and squalor instead of raising the people up who are living in that. It's ridiculous. It's like, dude, you are so ass backward. That's the tell. The the tell is that they never have any affirmative prescription for what they would like to do in the alternative. In fact, if I were going to give comms advice to anybody, it would be to say the next time someone says, you know, we really, we really need to have an alternative plan that like gets to the root of the problem. Simply say, okay, what do you suggest? What plan have you voted yeah, for? In I've the seen past? you do that a lot. What policy have you put forward? Oh, you think you think that you know it's elitist for working class people and poor people who can't afford to go to college to have those opportunities? What's your solution to the fact that there is a thirty thousand dollar increase in your average? Uh, pay if you actually do go to college what's your message to working class people who want to access that uh, financial opportunity what's your solution to all of the people who have vocational school debt which is yeah a real thing that everyone wants to erase from this equation people keep talking by the way about plumbers and electricians and truck drivers like you don't need credentials and training to do those jobs exactly it's so disrespectful you think you can just roll out of bed and be a plumber like you're such a dork like They don't know any plumbers. No one in their family is a plumber or no one's an electrician because, you know, all my friends who are electricians, they got debt from going to the trade school to become an electrician yeah. to join, you know, becoming, you know, entering the journeyman program or whatever. Like they're, they have debt and it's, yeah. and when people, you know, when you say stuff like, well, what about them? I, it's always like, yeah, pay them too. Like, right. we need, yeah, they're right. serving a good function in society. Of course, pay them too. So and we, it's the same thing when people talk about medical debt. I mean, you know that yep. when, when people are like, well, what about medical debt? It's like, yeah, bet. Yeah, let's cancel it. That sounds like, good. What? Okay. Credit card debt, let's, let's cancel it. Oh, why don't you pay yeah. off my truck? Okay. Like, Hell I have yeah. no problem with any Hell of this. Yeah. I'm not the one. And you know what? Right. I, this, I asked that guy that I was debating last week on the show, Brad. Palamo, yeah. Palombo. Um, sorry, yeah. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I, I just don't. I am. I don't remember. <laughs> Come on now. Brad like, Palombo. I, I was like, I was like, dude, like, okay, so do you support a wealth tax? He's like, this is irresponsible. The deficit, we can't pay for this inflation. I was like, okay, blood, like, right. do you support a wealth tax? No. No. Okay, but I don't know what to tell you. What you're really saying <laughs> is you want to do nothing for anybody except that you didn't have any of this smoke for the PPP loans or Trump's tax right. cuts or any of these other policies. And you can sit here and say all of them have this ex post rationalization where they say, well, I didn't like that either. I said, well, you weren't this big, bad, and loud about it. I didn't hear a single goddamn thing about right. it. And I, I, right. I word searched some of these people on Twitter today who are like medical debt, medical debt. I'm telling you, everyone should be doing this. None of them have tweeted about medical debt a single goddamn time. Now you go back over to Twitter and you go at Bree mm-hmm. Joy medical debt and see how many times I have been consistently pairing the call for medical debt relief and student debt relief since 2019, since we're on the Bernie campaign. Because it, it was clear to me. I had a tweet mm-hmm. from 2020 that said, Democrats need to always champion these two things together to ward off against claims that they are being elitist and only caring about one population. I, I've been mm-hmm. saying that. I've been saying that. So don't come at me talking about medical debt. You're the one who just learned how to spell medical debt yesterday. And you sure as hell didn't vote for Bernie Sanders, <laughs> who was the only person, including Elizabeth fake Native American yeah, Warren who gave ass, a damn about this and had it as a policy platform. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's fake as hell. And look like, like that, that is the tell. I mean, it's, oh God, it's, it's I, here. Here's the, the part that I really don't know. This is the part that kind of trips me out. This is, maybe it gets a little psychedelic or whatever, but I don't know how much the people who are championing these things 
are actually like ops or or have actually just been brainwashed into having these dead, you know, brain dead ass opinions by the society which they're shaped in, which is like, you know, if it's the latter, then it shows you the the significance of the power of propaganda and of these messaging and, you know, the manufacturing of consent that people even have this, you know, this reaction to this in the way that they have it. And that to me is actually the scarier thing. I'd rather they mm. be ops. Cause then at least I know that they're conscious about what the fuck they're doing. But if they're not, if it's just, this is the, the, the media sphere mm-hmm. of information, you know, like we have to deal with, that's a tough battle. And we need to get some counter propaganda out like hard and start finding ways to make that message bigger and bigger, find a way to break through. And it's tough. Cause then you start getting into the conversations about, well, if we're going to try to break through and you say, you start trying to do it on YouTube and YouTube relies on the system being kept the way that it is. And they mm-hmm. start, you know, using their algorithm to kind of stop you from being seen, you know, which I think, you know, I think it's interesting that breaking points for as, you know, as I, I think it's interesting that they have their YouTube channel hasn't been growing as much as the Hill since the, you know, they initially left since not, well, it, it's, it's doing fine, but they don't, they aren't suggested as much as like the Hill videos or anything like that. You know, institutional sort of um, media outlets. Uh, what not? Yeah, I follow them. Okay, just asking, because I realized recently that I didn't even follow the house. Like, the hell's videos aren't coming up on my feed. And then I was like, oh shit, I haven't subscribed. <laughs> yeah, I, I follow both. And and um, yeah, they don't, I, I know that the Hill too, just, it seems to get suggested more and, and put out more, which makes sense because it has, you know, well, I mean, makes sense for the way that you, the YouTube algorithm has been I, you know, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but the the word on the streets is that the YouTube algorithm uh, benefits or, or or suggests videos from institutions. Yeah, I know that, but I'll tell you this: the hill for- the hill has been down, like hard suppressed for the last maybe like three weeks or so since around. Interesting. You know, surely before Kim left, because it wasn't it wasn't Kim leaving. Yeah, I was about to it say happened, it's Kim Iverson. No, it happened before that. Um, so I would say okay. ordinarily, you know, like I would say that before, before whatever happened and there's been some conversations with the YouTube people and there's an acknowledgement that they did change something, but they won't tell you what or what's going on. But before that, you, you know, Kim could expect to get easily 150 to even half a million hits on her radar, but Kim's in a different world than everybody else. And I would say the, the other hosts could get, expect to get like, 50 for like a not that popular, like 30 to 50 for like an average radar and like 100 to 150 for a poppin' radar. Okay, like that was the range. And your average video similarly on the low end was like 20,000 on the high end was, uh, high average was like 80,000. Like that was the range. And for like a a solid mid-range radar, I would expect 80,000 views. These days, it's a struggle. Like if I hit 50,000 on a radar, I'm doing victory laps. And and a lot of the clips, like they... The, the average clips will get like 20,000 or even less than 20,000 hits. And it's impossible. Like it, it was like an overnight change. It's not the kind of thing that you would attribute yeah. to like declining interest. And it was, and it happened before Kim. So I don't, you know, Scotchy. like, and there's oh. an acknowledgement that something right. changed. So even the Hill is not immune to this. Remember the Hill got shut down for a week after it posted a video of a Trump speech in which he denied that Biden fairly won the election. Like the Hill didn't deny anything, but they just played a, right. a speech like C-SPAN just right. plays speeches just and they shut reporting, down the yeah. entire site. 
for like a week or two. Remember that? So like the Hill, I, I, I'm not yeah. trying to defend corporate media or anything, but like a lot of people are getting the shaft in the YouTube space. See, that's wild. We, uh, uh, I, part of me thinks that, uh, God, I don't even want to give credit to it, but I understand the point of the, the things behind stuff like truth social, right? I understand the point of having your own website or your own media like outlet or servers or whatever that you can, no one can control your messaging on there because as soon as things become as, you know, because YouTube for all intents and purposes is basically like a video monopoly, right? You have, you have Vimeo, which, Mm -hmm. you know, you'll, but no one really goes on Vimeo to browse or anything like that. YouTube is the place. Well, there's rumble. That's why, like I told you guys, I've been considering moving over to rumble. A lot of, a lot of places co-post over at rumble for that exact reason. What's it the ownership hurt. structure of, of Rumble? Is it like a co-op or something? Like, <laughs> no, it, I think it's Peter I, Thiel. <laughs> oh, oh my God, that's even worse. That's I'm pretty sure it's Peter Thiel. But I mean, that's the question. Like, who owns YouTube? Who owns, you know, all of these places are owned by like rich billionaires. The Intercept even, Pierre right. Omidyar. I mean, I'm not trying right. to, to minimize that they're not all equal. I think that some billionaires are better than others for sure, I guess. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. It's but tough. like it's this tough. is this is the thing unless except for patreon which god bless all of you subscribers which is like genuinely independent and like Substack and things like that it's you know you're you're choosing your poison yeah yeah well look i've been talking too long anyways with the with, with, with i mean i always like talking to you it's always i love this show it's good to hear people with good takes look forward to hearing from like john amanda people in there you know it's cool it's a good space uh, the one thing I'll say about the, the COVID part with the episode mm-hmm. is uh, I I really liked your take of basically, I, I haven't thought of, uh, this might sound really stupid, but the idea of not just downplaying COVID and, you know, the masks, um, the mandates and sort of the, the, like not, not using that, the situation with COVID to force the government into doing something that's needed anyway, you know, Mm -hmm. like the ventilation in schools, Mm -hmm. like using the, how I I really think we missed a moment uh, of basically when a lot of that funding, a lot of that stuff was coming in of, of trying to uh, force, I don't know, force some kind of vote or something like that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, Into uh, using those funds in ways that would be constructive for those schools anyway, or for society at large. Right. Uh, yeah. And I don't know why I think, I think I got so lost in just the politics of all of it that I didn't think of the, I don't know, that, that tension point that we actually had to maybe force the government to acknowledge how bad it is and then do something like change the ventilation systems in schools. But that, that was a really interesting point, but uh, I, I look, think we're I, over I that pre- hump. I think. Well, look, I appreciate that, but I, this is what I've been trying to push Robbie on on rising. I am like, I, I will totally admit that I have learned about inconsistencies in the science and in the messaging that I would not have known about in my own liberal bubble, my own leftist bubble on Twitter, and that I had a mm-hmm. skepticism from over a lot of the the kind of COVID critique 
because of the people who were saying it and the political camps that it was coming from, et cetera. But as time has gone on and I've realized that so much of my own audience has these frustrations and also being on the Hill and talking to people who feel differently than me, you know, it's made, it's opened my eyes a little bit to the fact that whatever you think about COVID interventions and mandates and things like that, we're going to have to engage in good faith and meaningfully with a very large percentage of the population who is extremely distrustful for some legitimate reasons and very hurt and irritated by and angry about the ways in which they have been vilified for raising some concerns, which I completely agree are valid. Yeah. And so like, it's not that like, so when, when Walker says, you know, I think that we need to keep, everything shut down or a restaurant shut down. Yeah. That, I, uh, that was uh, like, I, like I, I get, I, I personally on an individual level think that indoor dining is one of the stupidest things that I also personally engage in from time to time. Like I will acknowledge yeah, it. Like it's good. It's, it's I like food. I stupid. like being out. <laughs> <laughs> it's stupid and inconsistent. It's and dumb. also like I choose like 90% of the time I eat outdoors, but like that mm-hmm. doesn't, isn't always possible. And also it's winter's coming. Winter is coming. <laughs> so like, it's easy for me to cavalier for me to say that, but also I live in DC, the seat, it's more, you know, it's not that cold compared to other places in America. And also like, let's see what I'm going to be saying come winter. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 I don't know. Like, I think it's, it's right that people are irritated with people like me or other leftists who have been kind of, you know, rolling our eyes about not masking and not doing other things when we fully engage in behaviors that are not recommended by science. And when a lot of people would say, okay, I do want to keep restaurants open and businesses open because this can't stop forever. You know, like if you're, I, I respect Walker for being like, I, I actually think should be shut down for as long as it takes to get rid of COVID. Cause that's an honest take, but yeah, him making honest. that honest take really reveals why it is that not just crazies are like, that's not sustainable. Right. Because I think a lot right. of us were like, okay, let's do full shutdowns. Let's like lock it down. Let's do what it needs to be done for like a month, six months, a year. But at a certain point, if you really are saying that this is going to take multiple years, then you can't look at people sideways like they're crazy when they're like, mm, I can't put my children's education on hold for a year. Da, da, da. But then the other part yeah. of it is, is it necessarily that trade off? Are we unnecessarily jumping to with this all or nothing, black or white, either you send your kids to school and they get COVID or they stay at home and they get stupid. Isn't there this middle ground (laughs) where they could go to school and we would have actually done the things that we can do to protect them while in school. And that's my biggest irritation. We don't talk about that piece of it because we're too busy talking about, should we stay at home or should we go to school? Okay. Let's presume because of where we are now in the world that they're going to go to school. What on earth could we be doing to make that a safer place for people? Mm snaps just snaps yeah. i mean just whatever you do don't stop being you because <laughs> these are the conversations I'm, I'm glad someone's out there trying to have these conversations and shit and uh, you know we're i'm i'm in it for the long haul so uh i don't know i hope i hope everyone here is in it for the long haul too but uh i gotta get out of here y'all okay have been go great. ahead bud i appreciate <laughs> you um i'm gonna right. move on yeah, thank you, you and, and keep right. the faith always always all right. Let's try um uh Harvey J. That's a new name that I don't recognize. How are you doing? Oh my god, hi. Hello, can you hear me? Hi, I can hear you. What's on your mind this evening? 
Yeah, I don't think I, I think a lot of the people made the, oh, well, first of all, uh, thank you for calling on me. Uh, first time caller, but I've been listening to you since like the beginning. Oh, thank uh, you for that. You know. And um, I think Eric and all, uh, some of the guys before me made the point that I was making because I, you know, I normally don't call in because I like to listen at double speed later on once the full episode <laughs> is posted. <laughs> Same. But, That's how I live my life. Yeah, people call me crazy, but whatever. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, in the morning once I saw The Hill had posted their videos and I'm like, uh, like I don't want to make Brianna the screechy hall monitor of The Hill or whatever, of Rising. <laughs> But uh, she really needs to be there to keep these hoes in check because they're like, um, like six, seven out of ten videos would be like culture war, brain rot, and shit like that. And today as well, oh, student loan forgiveness is like giveaway to the elites, and progressives are making the um, I don't know, whatever, making the working class pay for their policies and blah 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 blah. I'm like. Hello, did you even read any of uh, the policies that were outlined in Bernie's plan? It was all for, you know, taxing the rich and making them pay for all of these uh, things. And then for the working class, there were offsets to, you know, uh, if someone would, you know, uh, like people who would work in coal or mining, uh, if they were to lose a job, then they would be supported by the government and things like that. Mm-hmm. It's like, I, 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 and I know that they know this because they are all smart people, but it's just like so disingenuous that, uh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I know look i'm not gonna opine for professional reasons on who i think is an op and who is just wrong but i i also i am also with some of you who are very suspicious of this very particularized line of attack which tries to characterize literally giving people an equal opportunity to get the level of education that they want to get as somehow elitist because education is bad all of a sudden in america it's it's insane to me it's insane to me i mean Um, i i I, i'm from canada so i don't want to sound sound off like the smug canadian who you know uh talks down to americans but you know america could use a lot more education and so could canada you know (laughs) sorry about that the the, the, the part that's like really crazy to me it's like you think about an 18 year old graduating from high school even the brightest 18-year-old you can imagine. Is your contention that that person should be uh, administering your IV in a hospital? Is your contention that that person should be uh, changing the gas main in your apartment and fixing your burner and you know free-flowing gas all over the place? <laughs> Is your contention that that person you know, should be over, overseeing the assembly line on the Abbott baby food formula factory. Like every single job is important and requires people to have knowledge and maturity. And there's different kinds of education that gets you specialized knowledge for each of those places. Not everyone is a four-year college. Some of them are two-year schools. Some of them are vocational schools. Some of them are apprenticeship programs. But almost every single thing you can imagine a person doing, you probably wouldn't love it if the 18-year-old fresh out of high school is the one doing it. I'm just putting that out there in the world. And it is crazy to me that there's such a little respect for just knowledge, any kind of knowledge. Yeah, any, and it, any it, of it. 
and it, I, I'm, I'm sure they know it doesn't work like that. Like you have to get certified and there's like, I, I don't know if it's, that's the case in America, but at least over here, there is like a regulatory body and you have to keep renewing your license with them. And that is the reason why, like, you know, when I have to call a plumber, I have to pay them like a hundred dollars an hour or whatever. It, mm. it, 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 it is working class in like the classic sense so that they're working with their hands, but uh, they make a good living. It's not uh, and much more than some of the um, what uh, like some of the uh, school teachers or whatever who you know they call leaders. I mean, but you've made that point already, so I don't need to harp on it. But maybe if I can just quickly give an example, like o- over here in Canada, uh, mm-hmm. we we do have uh, where you don't really have to do a four-year degree. There are vocational schools, like even for like I am in the software engineering field. So you don't have to do a four-year degree to get in that field. You can do a two-year or three-year diploma and start mm. off into that. Mm-hmm. And, but even, even with that, the salary that you would start with would still be different for someone who did the two-year, two-year diploma or the three-year uh, vocational training or if they did a four-year uh, undergrad or grad degree. Mm. But, mm. But, but it is still super affordable. Like mm-hmm. There are people who struggle with it. But like I came to Canada as an international student and as an international student, my fee was like 14,000 Canadian dollars a year, which is not that bad, but compared to what I would have had to pay if I had gone to NYU or someplace, mm-hmm. which was like 60,000 USD a year. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and and, and the, the local students here, they pay like 2,000 or $3,000 a year, which, uh, you know, you could still sort of work on the side part-time and sort of pay it off with like some help from your parents or whatever. So it's not so bad. Although yeah, it's a big it, you have that yeah. ability yeah, yeah. to get help. Yeah. Like, like, a, like a lot of people who were my colleagues in uh, university, a lot of them were, um, they would work during the summer and just collect, uh, save up enough money so that they could pay off like one or two semesters or whatever. Yeah, this, That's what's also like so extremely hilarious to me. This idea of all of these Republicans and some Democrats saying, oh, I worked over the summer to get X, Y, and Z. I had, a, I had a boss like this in my legal career once who said to me, when I went to law school, I worked at a gas station over the corner and I paid off my loans. I don't understand why everyone's complaining about student debt. You guys are just lazy. I said, okay, sir, recommend to me the job I should take that will pay me $60,000 for a summer. Please, even as an attorney. Right? Like, even as, a, as an attorney working at corporate law firms over the summer, I didn't earn $60,000. Well, Are you kidding a, me? <laughs> well, that, that's, that's, that's obviously your fault. You're not the son or daughter fund manager who could give you the job for $60,000 over the summer in their own company, you know? I, I, oh. I, get, I get their argument. That's the only way it would make sense. It's so crazy. And the, like, that's, I just, I don't understand how they're getting away with this and that people aren't pushing back on them on TV. If someone opens their mouth on national TV and says, I worked over the summer, the very simple question is, are you aware that the average college degree costs whatever, $30,000 a year or whatever it is? Obviously, it's much higher, higher for private schools, but most people with student debt have public school debt. You know, and these public schools are still tens of thousands of dollars a year, $20,000 a year, et cetera. And people don't have it. So tell me what job a 18, 19, 20-year-old should have that for the two months of summer is going to earn them $20,000 a year, $20,000. What job pays you $10,000 a month without a college degree and only will, and, and is happy with you working on a part-time basis over the summer? 
Jump me that job, but I will get it. And frankly, I don't need to go to college if I can get that job. Hell's bells. <laughs> and, and that is why you would never be invited on MSDNC and Clinton News Network because you would say shit like that. <laughs> well, uh, uh, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. I, really, I really love your show. The call-in, the podcast, the, uh, the rising spicy segments and everything. So, yeah, keep, well, keep you, doing what I appreciate you. And, and yeah, keep building the bridges that e- even with quote unquote bad fate actors like, you know, people <laughs> you've been having conversations with. Maybe the next bridge to cross would be, you know, making amends with, I don't know, Zerlina Maxwell or Yvette Nicole I Brown. I don't know. I would love to have <laughs> Zerlina on. I would, I would absolutely love to have either of them. I think Yvette Nicole Brown would probably come on. I don't know about Zerlina, but I, I love talking to moderates. I love talking to centrists. Really? I was just talking to, I was on, I did, um, it, the West Wing thing, you guys know, that's like my favorite podcast. Mm-hmm. I went, I recorded with them for their last ever episode today. And we were talking about um, how I have this sick desire to like, they were like, you should do a response. You should do a podcast that just responds to every, every episode of Pod Save. And I was like, well, yeah, I think that more people need to listen to Pod Save on the left to understand what the centrist thinking is. But also there's this sick part of me that doesn't actually want to go full in antagonistic because I'm still hoping that one or two of them can be saved. <laughs> like, come on back. We could have a conversation about how your coverage could be better and you could be more responsive to the left and maybe you could have leftists on the show occasionally because they have such a huge audience, you know? And I know that's like my own sickness. Like I recognize that the sickness in me, <laughs> but I, I find talking to centrist reveals the contradictions so much better than talking to conservatives because conservatives are who they are. Like, and even libertarian, like Robbie is who he is. He doesn't hide it. There's no mystery to it. And it, there's a certain extent to which I just really appreciate the honesty. It's centrists or people even on PodSafe who call themselves progressives who still don't get it, who are laundering the ineptitude of the Democratic Party for the broader public that I think are causing the most harm, much more so than any random Republican Ted Cruz type figure. And so like I really do want to talk to them and engage with them. I did a, I did an episode of um, – uh, Ian Schilling, I think is his name. Uh, he has a, he's a, has a major po- Vox podcast last year and it was so constructive and he was so kind and open. And I think that was so important to talk to that audience more so than so many other audiences. So yeah, Zerlina, if you're listening, uh, you're more than welcome. And if anybody has those connects, hop in her DMs and say, Zerlina, Brianna wants to have a, a good faith conversation with you and we'll see what we can get going. <laughs> but thanks for calling in, uh, Harvey J. Yeah. Yes, Elena, please do come on. I swear if you do, I'll delete my 2020 tweets about you, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Growth. We're all growing. We're all growing and coming together. All right. uh, Thank you, my friend. Last last point before I hang up. Uh, I I understand your point that, you know, it's uh, it's productive to have these conversations and they do take a long time. So it's not like one conversation is going to change any mind, but it does over a period of time. But I just think dunking on these people is just more satisfactory. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I get it. I get it. And that's why I appreciate that there's a lot of different spaces for us to consume a lot of different kinds of content and get our rocks off different kinds of ways. No judgment from me. <laughs> Thank okay. you, RBJ. Well, g- g- gather, uh, I don't know, uh, Katie Halper and a few other incredible <laughs> ball and just go and jam six the view or something. I don't know. <laughs> All right. We're, Thank you. we're working on it. Have a good one. All right. Keep <laughs> the faith. All right, Rebecca, how are you doing this evening? I know I'm, I'm tricky. I'm hopping around. I'm catching you unawares. 
Rebecca, can you unmute yourself? There you go. Hey, hey, thank you for calling on me. Yeah, of course. What's in your mind this evening? Um, well, first off, I wanted to say happy birthday. Um, <laughs> thank you. Fellow Leo over here. So whoop, whoop. when was your birthday? Uh, the 8th of August. An auspicious day. I have a very close friend from high school whose birthday is August 8th. Nice. Very cool. Um, yeah, so I wanted to start with that. Um, and I just had like a tiny comment, I guess, was your choice of having Robbie talk with Walter Bergman. I, I mean, I get that, you know, Robbie, and he's probably like an easy, quick guest to find. But like, for me, as a person on the left, like, I really would have loved to have a conversation like, between two leftists, like, you know, someone with the position of being like anti lockdown on the left. And then someone also on the left who was like pro lockdown and sort of because I feel like Robbie just like didn't make the points that I would have made, you know, like when he talked about how there was like economic benefit on the side of like being pro vaccine, like he didn't bring up the pharmaceutical industry. He brought up teacher unions, you know, Mm -hmm. which is like totally the wrong point to make. So to my mind, I felt like there was a lot of ground that didn't get covered and it would have been really cool to have someone like Max Blumenthal on or maybe like CJ Hopkins or, you know, someone on the left who has like a more um, anti-lockdown point of view. I'm happy to, I mean, obviously Max has been on before, I guess that was a live stream that we ended up making into a podcast, but I'd be happy to have him back, you know. My thinking was that there are a lot of people who don't consider Max Blumenthal to be on the left. I'm not one of those people, but to the extent that I'm trying to put forward what people perceive as a good faith argument, if I have Max, first of all, if I have Max Blumenthal in like Robbie, they're going to agree largely on everything. So that's, that kind of gets rid of the left, right. And I hear you saying you want two leftists. If I put Max Blumenthal in in Walker, I mean, that's that's an interesting conversation to me, but I was trying to avoid some of the accusations that this isn't, you know, a quote-unquote real leftist and have it framed up as a kind of a partisan issue. But I, I appreciate your point, and it certainly doesn't foreclose the possibility of having um, Max back on to have these kinds of conversations. And frankly, you know, Robbie is the person that I hear talking about it most often because I'm in his world. We co-host a show together. But, you know, I don't disagree that Max is, you know, a good guest on these sorts of things. Um, And totally, like, I appreciate that. And I know, like, Robbie was was not, like, a terrible – it was an interesting conversation for sure. And I thought, you know, both sides had good points. So, um, yeah, I just thought, like, um, that it could have gone deeper, you know. But also, I want to just say in general, I agree with everyone's vibes on the whole like student loan forgiveness thing. I haven't listened to Batia's radar, um, but it sounds like she made a really horrible call. Um, so I hope that you do get to smash her to pieces on Rising next time you're there. <laughs> you guys are such a mess. I feel like I really do have to play some of this now. I'm like super curious, you guys bringing it up, bringing it up so much. Would that be like the worst? Do it, do it. I would love to hear. Let's just start start it and see how it goes. Okay, here we go. On your radar. 
Well, as you all know, last week, President Biden announced he would be taking the unprecedented step of forgiving $10,000 in student loans to borrowers making less than $125,000 a year. Second-year Harvard Law graduate Supreme Court clerks, social media editors at major publications, dentists early in their careers, accountants taking their first jobs, all of these people will qualify for this taxpayer-funded bailout of the upper class. So, first of all, that's just a flat-out lie. There's no first-year attorney who makes a less... Wait, wait, let me, let me, let me qualify this. There, there's no, none of the attorneys that she's imagining, like the horrible rich one, like by default, it's a means <laughs> tested. There's nobody who is rich who gets the benefit. Like, I don't understand. Either you are a corporate attorney and you make 125 plus right out the gate because starting salaries when I graduated 10 years ago were 164 corporate lawyers in New York. It's different regionally, but in New York. So that's a moot issue. And so now I guess the complaint is, the people who are like doing pro bono work are going to get their loans. Exactly. Exactly. It's so bizarre. Also, it's such, it's so dishonest when, look, I'm not going to sit here and lie. There, there is going to be, there are going to be these like very marginal few cases where people who literally just graduate this year who earn like just under the cutoff, but still have pretty good salaries will get $10,000 of their loans waived. It is true that there's some accountant somewhere who's going to graduate and earn $90,000 or whatever accountant earns. I have no idea what a first-year accountant earns and who will get their loans canceled. But, I, you know, color me crazy, that doesn't sound like the worst thing in the world to me. Uh, that's not exactly the windfall that she thinks it is, and it's not exactly the the inequity that she thinks it is, especially since every program in America is aimed at the middle class. Since when was the middle class the enemy? All of these programs are like mortgage relief for homeowners making a million dollars a year. Like no one ever cared until just now. So if you really think that the accountant is going to be rich someday and got this unfair windfall, I fully endorse taxing the shit out of them. I fully (laughs) endorse saying, you know how Biden said you're not going to raise taxes for anybody earning under $400,000 a year. Let's scoot that right down $100,000 and tax the shit out of people to make up for it. I fully endorse that policy. Now, honestly, you should really just focus on the super rich since they have the overwhelming majority of the income, tax millionaires and billionaires. But like, I'm not the one. Like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm like 29 seconds in. Let me just keep playing. (laughs) Of course, some people who truly need and deserve help will qualify too. About 10% of Americans who attended some college dropped out before getting a degree. And some of them are saddled with student loans while working minimum wage jobs. Certainly some of the- That 10% is so dishonest. 10% of people might have dropped out before getting a degree. 40% of those who get student debt relief are those people who did not have a degree. 40% of people getting relief don't have a degree. Okay. And the idea that $10,000 is going to cover it, you know, it's like just a drop in the bucket. It's ridiculous. She's, okay, sorry. You're right. Entirely. (laughs) But even more of it will go to the elites. Young, college-educated Americans. No, even more of it will not go to the elites. That's a lie. You are lying. It's the same amount for everybody. Like, what a blatant lie. It's a lie. Oh, my God. Okay. The beginning of what will be very lucrative and stable careers by the time they are in their 30s and 40s. And to others currently making double the median income of the average household in this nation. 
I'm not going to relitigate the student loan debate. Robbie, you did an amazing job of holding down the fort last week. Um, but as someone who spent most of my reporting hours <laughs> talking to working class Americans across the nation, you can guess where I stand on this legislation, a piece of class warfare that Inez Stepman has called a reverse Robin Hood, taking from the poor and giving to the rich. <laughs> She's quoting Prager oh U. There's a Prager U, the, the article, who is Stepman, whoever that is. It's literally a Prager U tweet that's on the screen right now. Oh my or what Zedjelani has called a Brahmin bailout, or what railroad worker Charles Stallworth called trickle-down economics left. Okay, that Charles Stallworth article is her article that I talked about on my radar last week as being one of the craven, most craven, ugly, cruel, disgusting, pathetic pieces of propaganda that I've ever read, and which she published as editor of Newsweek and is now promoting like she has nothing to do with it. Like, oh, this is just a random working person's point of view. Oh my God. Preach. Preach. Okay. Okay. Sorry. sorry. Edition in Newsweek. The point I want to make today is that the student loan forgiveness program is not an aberration. It's the apotheosis of a trend on the progressive left in which progressives wage class war on the working class, but dress it up as a moral pose. It's okay, a I'm sorry. See over Who uses and over the word apotheosis the... to talk about class warfare <laughs> on the working class? Like, excuse me? Look, I've been guilty of it, but I never pretended to not be an elite. <laughs> like, I know who I am. I just, I best I describe myself as a class trader. Like, but she really, like, this is what's so frustrating. Like, there's no honesty or transparency about any of this. She knows she wouldn't have her job if she didn't have the credentials that she has. And she definitely has a grad school degree. She's very, she does not disclose a lot about her background. Remember, I asked her about it a little on our show and she didn't disclose much, but it did come out in the conversation that she does have a graduate school degree. And if you believe, like she wrote this whole book and much of her book, I will say is quite good as a historical document about the history of news media. If, if what you read in her book, where it used to be that working class people used to get to do the news, that's obviously not the world we live in now. And it's just very rich that a person is going to sit here and say, with my credentials, I get to be opinion editor at Newsweek. But I don't actually want working people, people from working class families to access that same opportunity. It's disgusting. Literally. The definition of the word. (sighs) Okay, here we go. New progressive left. They take their economic privilege, mistake it for virtue, and then make the working class pay for it. Student loan forgiveness is, of course, the perfect example of this. It's always portrayed by the left as some kind of social justice initiative when the truth is the opposite. The highest income 40 percent of borrowers hold 60 percent of the student debt in this country. And yes. So Sparky, angel on earth, Abraham broke this down on Rising last week. It is both true that the top that the beneficiaries are in the top 60 percent and that they are in the bottom 60 percent. Because they are in the middle. Because <laughs> they are in the middle. Because that's how income distribution works. That's, that's so dishonest. Okay, sorry. Some ah. poor folks and working class folks have student loans. But the vast majority of student debt is held by people who will, on average, make $1 million more in their lives than people who don't have a degree. A college degree is not only a predictor of upward mobility, but better health outcomes. So why don't you want everyone to be able to access it? a longer life, and all the benefits of today's economy, which elites of both parties have made sure works extremely well for knowledge industry jobs and extremely poorly 
for the people who do the kinds of jobs we actually rely on to exist. Nurses don't what? actually rely on them. Teachers don't actually rely on them. Doctors don't actually rely on them. You care about your Sixth Amendment? Guess you don't need a lawyer. <laughs> okay, sorry. Oh, that's so frustrating. How do progressives, the people who are supposed to care about the lower classes, about fairness, about equity, end up pushing for a bailout for the people already most likely to succeed in this country? A bailout that will be paid at taxpayers' expense, meaning by the working class. It will not. And if you care yeah. so much, how about you just tax the rich? Whatever deficit you think is going to magically, you know, whatever whatever profit off of students that you're sad the government is no longer going to be able to claw in the form of usurious interest rates, why not just tax the rich? Oh, wait, you don't actually support that policy because that's who you work for? I don't understand. It's such a false point to say that the working class is going to pay for this. Like, this isn't even coming out of taxpayer money. Like, I don't understand how people even make that argument. It's insane. It's a lie. Yeah. It's a lie. And people are lying liars with no scruples. It's a lie. <laughs> I'm sorry. And, it, and the tell is, if you say, let's pretend, like, I care at all about the deficit, and let's pretend that I care that there is some sliver of revenue that the government is going to be forgoing by canceling this debt. And let's pretend that I don't think it's disgusting and usurious for the government to even be profiting off of these loans to begin with. Let's pretend all of that. If you just want to make up money, you just want more tax revenue, I promise you I know where I can get it in a way that absolutely does not hurt poor people. It's by taxing the rich. And not a single one of these dingleberries will ever <laughs> ever co-sign that as a policy also by the way they have absolutely no imagination about the idea that a working class person would ever want to take these jobs get these jobs that they might have kids that they want to have access to these opportunities siblings that have these jobs parents that are paying off debt like they treat like they, they act like there's like an island called like blue collar and everybody there lives in a very distinct culture where they don't have a diversity of aspirations and interests and family members and friends and, and people and loved ones in their lives. It's such a bizarre way to look at the world. And the idea that no one who works in a blue collar job has college debt, like, yes. I'm sorry, like, I work on a farm and I would say the majority of the people that work on that farm have college debt. Like, it's just, it's a lie to pretend like, you know, these blue collar workers don't also live in debt for the, you know, the years that they've studied. Like, yep. it's just so elitist to pretend like, oh, only the rich people have been to college. No, tons of freaking poor people have been to college too. Yep. Because our government told them to, they said, poverty is your fault. To assume that you come from a disadvantaged community, it's because you don't value education and you're not working hard enough. And that's why what is particularly sour about all of this is that so many people from historically disadvantaged groups in particular went and said, okay, I'm going to do the right thing and go to college. And now they're being scolded by the exact same people who told them to go to college and pull themselves up by their bootstraps for having followed the path that they were told was going to lead them to success. So which is it, Batya? Is it that... Getting a college degree leads you to all this success and therefore you earn over $125,000 and don't qualify for this? Or did you go to college and now suddenly you don't actually have that much success and you actually need help because you were spun a, a false, you were, you were given a false, um, you were lied to about what the, what the uh, advantages were going to be. 
Like this thing where it's like you are be- doing better than average, that is of course true, which is why we want more people to have that opportunity. There are fewer and fewer jobs for whatever reason that don't require some level of education beyond high school. Why wouldn't you want to let people who want to take advantage of those opportunities have equal access as people who have rich parents? That's it, Batya. What's your solution for the fact that college costs more for people with rich parents than people who don't? That vocational school costs more for people with rich parents who don't? Just like cars cost more for people who who can't pay cash up front than people who have to get a lease. The whole world is structured this way. Mm-hmm. It's not just student debt. And to the extent that I completely agree with you, Batya, there are other more meritorious groups that we should serve before student debtors. It's not my fault that Joe Biden and all of these centrists won't vote for those policies. And all we can do is what we can do by executive order. I didn't choose this. I like could not agree more. Oh my God. Can you guys need to just have a debate like you and Batya just on rising? Like I want to see that so much. I I'm going to have to um, have another chamomile beer if that's going to happen. <laughs> at least Biden capped the forgiveness at those making $125,000 a year or less. But recall that the progressive position was total cancellation for every Harvard law educated lawyer and every NYU educated dentist. Oh, my like gosh. She's arguing that, for Biden's uh, position. I, 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 this is not a thing. Most I, I don't know a single person in my personal life who actually I mean from my law school life, who is going to get any cancellation. I have to think about that. Oh, maybe my friend, I have a friend who didn't pass the bar, whose mom had a stroke when we were in college and had to take an extra year to graduate from law school, had to pay a fourth year of law school, got no debt relief, and was not able to practice as a lawyer because of some mental health issues and other things, family issues, and now works for like a public service organization for like $60,000 a year and has $750,000 of debt. So yes, if you're complaining that my friend who has $750,000 of debt because of her growing ballooning interest is going to get a measly (laughs) 10,000 off the top. I mean, I I bet she doesn't even give a fuck. (laughs) It doesn't do anything. Like it's an insult. If that's the Harvard law grad that you're complaining about, God bless. (laughs) Like, I guess, I guess that's a really sad thing. Oh, Jesus Christ. I, did she is she really considered a leftist? Like I don't understand how she how, how she could claim to have those principles and at the same time like be misleading people with such false statements. I don't know. That's not how I define her, but like, you know, people choose their labels. And perhaps not coincidentally, every congressperson making $175,000 a year. How is this the progressive position? Wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. If Congress people making $175,000 a year, what? They obviously don't qualify. Why are they even in this? Why are they in this? I think she's talking about this is the progressive position is to forgive the student loans of everyone, like regardless of how much money they make. Okay. I mean, they're right. Because <laughs> the sad thing is that not that many people, I mean, this is the problem. I obviously support full cancellation and there are going to be, you know, I support, I, I agree on some level that full cancellation makes the most sense with the broader suite of Bernie policies, which do keep it from being a windfall for the rich. So take someone like me, like I'm in a position now because of the moratorium where I could pay off my loans. Like I've saved and when the moratorium ends, I personally can pay off my loans. There's an argument that I should have to because I can, 
right? And that's fine. But there's also a world where you say, okay, let me pay off my loans and then just tax me more. And you will get more out of me over the lifetime, or at least as long as I have a high income, because that can also change, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of, of full cancellation for everyone would go hand in hand with like, an entire debt jubilee, like not just student loan debt, yes. but like medical, medical debt, loan credit debt, card debt, and credit card debt, other kinds of debt for universal housing. And also, mm-hmm. by the way, fixing the underlying issues with the uh, cost of college. So I do, I do agree that there is this way that like take picking and choosing like part of the progressive slate or like the Bernie slate and implementing them singularly does feel unjust. I'm not even going to argue against that, but that wasn't the proposal. And there's a way that Biden is doing a disservice to the progressive agenda by not doing all of the things at once, by not coupling this with at least a plan or policy proposal for medical debt cancellation. And by not having a funding plan like Bernie had to make public colleges and universities tuition free with a very like moderate tax on um, wall street transactions. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm in favor of all this. Yeah. Oops, sorry. Commercial. Uh, five, four, three, two, one. Sorry. <laughs> well, consider who progressives are. According to the Pew Research Center, progressives are the whitest and tied for most highly educated of all of the groups that make up the Democratic coalition. There's your answer. This is class warfare on their own behalf. It's not just progressives, oh though. The entire Democratic Party has undergone a status revolution of late. of Americans making over $500,000 a year are now Democrats. Oh, my God. Like, the average Republican has a higher income than the average Democrat. This is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. Like, where did she even get this stat that, like, progressives are the whitest part of the party? I just, like... Bernie had more... Like, first of all, he won every demographic under 40. That's not even a contest. Moreover, he had the least white, least male coalition in 2020. I can't speak to 2016, but that was definitely true in 2020. He had the most diverse campaign staff in all of the race. Like, black women have more student debt as a proportion than any other group in the entire country. And to try to ally that fact with that statistic is, I'm sorry, racist. It's like a weaponization of identity politics (laughs) in, in order to, like, screw the working class. Yes, it's, it's racist in the, and not that I hold I, negative racist beliefs about people, but in the I'm advancing policies to hurt people of color version of racist. Like, I would argue the worst kind. <laughs> oh, God. And then, by the way, if, you, if we had closed, I, this is a tweet that went viral before I was limited on how many people were allowed to like or see my tweets. But if we were to close the racial, if we had closed the racial wealth gap, and I think 2016 was the year, it might have been 2018. But if we had closed it at that time, the racial wealth gap between young families of color and uh, young black families and young white families. So like, it's like families under 45 or something like that would go from, uh, I think it was, Oh shit. I should just find the tweet. It was like going from like, I can find it. Free, joy, student debt, racial that'll did it. Do it. Okay. If we had canceled all student debt in 2016, we would have shrunk the racial wealth wealth gap between young white and black households aged 25 to 40 from 12 to one to five to one. Wow. 12 to one to five. First of all, the racial wealth gap between people, not old people like, Oh, back in the olden days when things were segregated and bad. No young families, the racial wealth gap is still 12 to one. 
And it could be five to one if we had just canceled student debt. That's how disproportionately black people have student debt. But Batya and all her infinite expertise feels otherwise. So let's just continue to hear from the experts. While 74% of voters making less than $100,000 a year vote Republican, 84 of the 100 highest educated counties in the country vote Democrat. The wealthiest 4% of Americans are increasingly Democrats, and 98% of donations from Silicon Valley went to President Biden. Joe Biden also got more political donations from Wall Street than Donald Trump did. I mean, he sucks. This we don't like him. What does this have to do with student debt? <laughs> this is literally like the most tribal bullshit ever. It's like you don't decide whether you like a policy based on like which party supported it or who voted that party into power. You decide on the policy based on its merits. Like, you know, Correct. whether it was a Biden policy or a Trump policy, like if it's going to help people, that's all that matters. Correct. I'll tell you what, I'll sing the praises of Trump's student debt moratorium all day and night. Hell yeah. <laughs> clear that what they're Those doing checks. with student loan forgiveness <laughs> is just advocating for their own economic interests. And there's actually nothing wrong with that. The problem is that is not what they say. They don't admit that they are pushing for something that will benefit them. They cast this as some kind of moral battle for the indigent when what it is is lining the pockets of the elites. Here's the thing. Oh, America is really being run into the ground by people making $90,000 a year. Those elites who are controlling our policy. <laughs> God damn, all of these accountants with their $75,000 a year salary. It's he who controls <laughs> Wall Street. <laughs> Student loan forgiveness is not the only example like this. When you examine the entire progressive platform, Every plank of it has this category error in it of misunderstanding economic privilege as moral virtue and then demanding that the working class pay for it. I've discussed here at length how this works with regards to immigration, how the class that benefits from cheap goods and cheap labor decided to call you racist if you work in an industry that's undercut by importing an entirely new working class from another part of the world. It's also what is this like? What? What does this have to do with student debt? Like, so I, I completely lost. agree that trade, like the, you know, offshoring jobs is bad. I think that some people who are upset about these trade policies are characterized unfairly as racist. I think that there, it is very easy to get people mad at immigrants when you aren't being honest about the, their declining job opportunities here. And we should address the underlying issue and not just think that calling people racist is going to solve the problem, even if they do say racist things. Like, I agree with all of that. But truly, Queen, what does that have to do with student debt cancellation? Yeah, I'm so lost. I really oh, don't understand. Lord, Lord. Okay, I'm going to speed her up a little bit because I can't. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 1.5. The case with their maximalist green agenda, okay, one, one class is five, zipping around 5. in electric cars, the perfect virtue signal because it signals not only your virtue, but how rich you are. While the other class has good union jobs in the energy sector axed in favor of importing slave manufactured wind turbines from China. I, okay. They are all for releasing <gasps> mentally ill drug addicts into your communities where they prey on vulnerable people of color while they live in nice neighborhoods with astronomical rents polishing their halos. COVID what? I'm so confused. She's not a leftist. Like, she's literally, like, I don't understand the argument that she's making. But it's like, Democrats are bad. Don't ever support anything that Democrats support. Is that, that's basically what she's saying? I, I, well, she, she, her whole thing is about, like, Elisa. So she thinks that, like, and a lot of people, 
who I would argue are more credibly leftist also make this argument. I mean, one of the articles she flashed at was from Zed Jelani, and I have some colleagues at The Intercept who I disagree with often, but I don't think are bad faith actors who make this case where they say, you know, uh, uh, abolish the police or police reform is an elitist issue because black people and brown people in these disadvantaged neighborhoods, high crime neighborhoods, they actually want crime to go away. So it's only elitists who live in nice places who think that we should abolish the police. And I'm like, well, no, stop conflating the idea of police reform or even abolishment mm-hmm. with not wanting to attend to crime. The issue is that the more we fund the police, these neighborhoods still have a ton of crime on top of which the members of the community are being surveilled and mass police and mass incarcerated in a way that is not mm-hmm. helping them either. So, like, I agree that sometimes the left loses the messaging thread on being too indifferent to the victims of crime. I think there's a way that you could have addressed, like, we could have addressed, like, that viral clip of the woman getting punched in the face by the homeless man, like in a way that was like, yes, it's terrible that she got punched in the face. Mm-hmm. Also, here's the way to keep people from getting punched in the face. Actually have mental health support for mentally ill people who are roaming around on the streets, not say, Oh, vengeance to get punched in the face means you must toil the rest of your life in prison. Like at the end of the day, like it's bad to get punched in the face, but it's, I'm sorry, worse to be incarcerated for the rest of your life. Yeah, well, speaking as someone who actually was punched in the face by a homeless person, I, like, don't think that the answer to that was locking him up in prison. Like, he clearly had mental health issues and, like, you know, had, was on some hard times. And, like, I just, yeah, I think absolutely, exactly everything that you're saying. (laughs) Like, yeah, I can, I can hold those two things in my mind at the same time. Like, yes, no, I don't want homeless people punching people on the street, but I also want police reform. Correct. It's, it's, oof. Lockdowns of course worked this way too. The homeowner class's home values skyrocketed. Private school educated children soared astronomically ahead of their public school counterparts who were relegated to Zoom learning by the laptop class's regime, which punished the working class who had to brave the plague. They cast anybody who opposed lockdown as a moral pervert while watching their own bank accounts swell. And then when it came time to end the lockdowns, they demanded that you take the vaccine to protect them while they were served by you so they could feel comfortable being waited on you in restaurants and hospitals. I, I mean, we what? just had a whole episode on this, and so you know how I feel about this. But truly, just uh, you should get the vaccine so that you don't end up in a hospital and die. Like that's it. If you don't want to, don't get it. Like I can't. Like don't get it. But like the idea yeah. of moralizing about people not like. I agree that the messaging was all over the place and people really did think it was about transmission and all of this, but pretending like the only people who are vaccine hesitant, like the people who I see masking the most and who mask the most, I'm sorry, are like service industry workers who have to be Mm -hmm. exposed to the hordes of Mm -hmm. frankly, a lot in DC. I live in DC, like a lot of people for ideological reasons who don't mask and don't get vaccinated and are very much in the restaurants and in the spaces with shirts on that telegraph their politics, you know, and it's the, it's the, it's the service workers, many of whom are black and brown disproportionately who are masked up riding around on bikes, delivering people food. This idea that it's like somehow liberal elites that are doing this. It's, it's rich people of all stripes. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I completely agree that the vaccine should be a personal choice. You know, if you, if you want um, to get vaccinated and 
you know, protect your health in that way, you should definitely do it. And if you feel like it's not necessary, I've already had COVID a couple times, like I have the antibodies, you know, then that can be your choice too, you know, but I with God, it's a free country. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. Yeah, this is okay. I would just like to say for the record, you guys made me do this. I wasn't going to do this. You guys made me do this. We're, I feel we should, bad. I feel like I've really been monopolizing your time. And there's probably a bunch of people look, in the queue who are angry. Else, <laughs> I can bring someone else up to help me through the rest of this journey, Rebecca. Uh, look, I okay. appreciate you. Let's bring Jaw in here. Keep the faith, okay. Rebecca. Yeah, Jaw, ja, tell me what's on your mind. And if you want me to play the last three and a half minutes of this before oh my she God. get to the chit-chat section or not. Like, I can go either way. I don't need to I subject everybody to this. <laughs> Breathe, damn it, my blood pressure. <laughs> Listening to this. Look, man, I know we don't talk about emotions much on this show, um, but this whole student loan thing just, I was so demoralized. And honestly, I'm on my Mexican vacation on this beautiful Sonoran beach, and I was literally nice. sad. It mm-hmm. was, <laughs> I, I had to get myself together. I'm like, man, I'm around happy people and beer and <laughs> pelicans. And I'm like, pouting about student loan debt but yeah i mean yeah we can cycle through this thing we might as well since we already bit off most of the apple (laughs) okay all right i'm it'll go a little faster because it's also at 1.25 now Student loan forgiveness isn't an aberration of who the Democrats are under the sway of the progressive movement, but the apotheosis of a party. (laughs) Apotheosis? Wait, we need a sound effect for apotheosis. What do I got? I'm on that podcast. Nope. This is the best your hair has ever looked. I don't know why I have that in here. This is the best your hair has ever This is a mess. Stupid son of a bitch. Okay, how about we go with this one? Stupid son of a bitch. Perfect. <laughs> From the working class to themselves. It's trickle up economics. And if you oppose any aspect of it, you're selfish, says Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on Instagram about the student loan forgiveness uh, um, policy over the weekend. Quote, in light of the ecological, economic and social challenges we face, our society's ability to triumph and prevail actually depends on our capacity for selflessness over selfishness, she wrote in her thoughts on student loan forgiveness. Did you get that? Stop being so selfish. Waitresses and linemen and nurses, aides and cops pay off our student loans. Do you really think those people don't have student debt? I'm sorry. I don't know if she does or she doesn't, but this is ridiculous. Also, cops like. I, 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 we all know the problems with the cops, but in a world where there is some force that is dealing with problems that do emerge, that helps to address in a compassionate and medically indicated way, people who are having mental health crises, who are intervening when there really is some violent altercation that they need to intervene in and aren't standing around picking their noses like the cops of Ovalde. Like, I suspect that being (laughs) capable at that job, just like so many other jobs, requires real training, the likes of which they don't have. Mm-hmm. Oh, and it's just, it's, I'm sorry. The fundamental disrespect of thinking that everyone can just do anything, mm-hmm. like sprung from the ground because you're like a fucking animal who's just toiling and doesn't need to be trained in any kind of way. It's so disrespectful. We just really lost the ability to talk about the value of education beyond this monetary value, like, you know, reached by the universities themselves or whatever individual that has some distant promise of class upward mobility like we we just we can't even talk about anything else beside that con that concept within the the broader spectrum of what education does in this country so i don't even 
exactly what you said. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's get through this. Pay us a $12,000 rebate for our Teslas. Keep funding DEI consultants who have ballooned the cost of a college education. So we'll be in this exact same place. Girl, I'm with you. Fire them. I don't care. That's not my battle. It's in three years. How can you be so selfish as to oppose any of this? Wonders a woman making $174,000 a year. They don't just call you selfish. Progressives, including the president, hit back against criticism of the student loan forgiveness scam by bringing up the payroll protection loans that many took out when the government locked down the economy and made it impossible for people to work. How are these at all comparable? Where exactly is the contradiction between not wanting... Because people didn't actually use them to keep people employed! The problem isn't the PPP loans. We supported the PPP loans. Like, that wasn't the issue. The issue was there was no built-in means testing or assurances or or proof that people had that actually used the money for the right ways. The way that there's all of this public conversation about student loan debt and making sure that, God forbid, not a single person who didn't, quote-unquote, deserve it, get a single penny that wasn't coming to them. That's the Uh inconsistency. Like, Among if you many. means tested and penny pinched and did all that stuff with the PPP, then I would agree with you. But as, as many people know, my mom's a, a, a single, um, a, a minority small business owner. She didn't get a dime because all the money was sucked up dry by Paul Pelosi and Kim Kardashian. Sorry, Chloe Kardashian. Look, long before anybody who actually needed it got it. Brianna, I had, I had my massage business back up in Seattle. It had been yeah. doing well for three years. COVID hit. You know, mm-hmm. dust in the wind. Mm-hmm. And you, mm-hmm. you think I you think I received anything? Absolutely not. So there right. you go. Right. Right. Okay. We're almost done. We're almost wanting done. People kids. to get laid off and not wanting truck drivers to pay off the loans of first year corporate lawyers. Or they bring up the average truck driver has <laughs> debt from truck driving school. I forget what the numbers are, but you've heard me say I think it was about seven thousand dollars to get trained. And again, Batya. There's zero corporate lawyers in America who earn less than $125,000 a year. I promise you, you're getting screwed. You want, I don't know what kind of corporation she's talking about, but the starting corporate lawyer salary 10 years ago was $160,000. Stop talking out of your fucking ass. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You have Republican handouts to the this. rich. What about... You don't even know what? I don't even know this woman. Who is this woman? Okay, let me let me collect myself because I'm being very unprofessional. I'm sorry. Like I, you know, Bree, I'm here for it. It's I'm really sorry. Me right like now. I'm gonna it's... get in trouble. I act like this is like a private room that is like not gonna exist on the internet. Sometimes when I'm in here, and I need to really check myself because someday all of this is gonna come back and bite me in the ass. Look, true that. Batya Angar Sargan is the opinion editor at Newsweek. Hmm. Mm-hmm. She has written a book which I talked to her about on this podcast and. 75% of which I think was actually quite informative and interesting about the history of the publishing industry and how it did used to be a much more working class industry and that how it's a problem that it's not. I agree with all of that. But I like do... last year, did you do this? Uh, yeah, I think it was last okay. fall. I think it was, I was home. I interviewed her in person, in fact, in New York, cause I was home, I think for Thanksgiving break. Okay. I do remember that. It's a live. Yeah. I think it was a Patreon, uh, interview. Maybe, a, maybe I'll, uh, I'm on, uh, um, un, unblock it. What do you call it? Unlock <laughs> it. it. Unlock it. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe I'll unlock it now that this is all in the news um, and put the full video on uh, YouTube. But there's a long video clip, obviously, like we always do for premium episodes on YouTube. And the full video is available uh, to pre- patrons. Um, but this came up. This mm-hmm. came up. And I will say this about Bata. She is extremely personable 
and nice and sweet in a way that is a little disarming and makes you reluctant to call plainly what her beliefs indicate she is. Hmm. You know, if you get my drift. Oh, and so yeah. Now that I know more about her, I think it would have been a different kind of interview, but this tension definitely came up and I definitely, she definitely, you know, said that I was elitist for thinking everyone should have an opportunity to go to college. And I definitely said my piece back to her. Um, but that's who she is. And she yeah. is the co-host and has been for the last month or so, a co-host of rising on Mondays, the uh. left She's the in the left chair to Robbie's libertarian. Oh, chair. is that so? Correct. Okay. Which is what I think is especially distasteful. If she were just a conservative saying this, I think we'd be like, "That's irritating," but it is what it is. But yeah. I think that people are really bristling at the idea that she is offering up a left perspective. Nobody believes that, though, do they? Like, really? Well, oh, unfortunately, God. I think a lot of the conservatives watching might, and I don't even know what that means for our movement, because this is the opposite of populism. And if people think that this is what left populism is, like, God help us all. Oh, man. Yeah. Okay. Trump's tax cuts. Indeed. That is exactly who they most resemble. Someone should tell them that this isn't a defense, but an admission of guilt. Student loan forgiveness is a tax cut for the rich. If the Republicans have for too long been the party of the rich, the Democrats have become the party of the overeducated elites, pushing open borders, corporate law. Literally tax the rich. Okay. Your loan forgiveness, climate and COVID extremism as a form of class warfare against the very people they used to view as their base. Not anymore. They used to ask why the working class is voting against their economic interests when they vote for Republicans. That line of argument is no longer available to them, even as a joke. It's like they're begging you to understand this. They don't want your votes. And some are even coming out and saying that these days, like Florida Democrat gubernatorial hopeful Charlie Crist, who had a basket of deplorables moment last week when asked about how he was going to attract the supporters of his rival, Governor Ron DeSantis. Okay, but also he Republican. Like, why are you putting right. all of this on us? Like, nobody even wanted him. <laughs> well, and why isn't, okay, this is such a bastardized version version of, you know, a progressive policy about student, for any sort of debt forgiveness or, you know, debt cancellation. So, like, why is all this being put on us anyway when it's just the bastardized version? Yeah. So yeah. frustrating. Yeah. I, okay, okay. We're almost done, kids. We're almost done. <laughs> Those who support the governor should stay with them and vote for him. I don't want your vote. If you have that hate in your heart, keep it. I want the vote of the people of Florida who care about this thing. Good Democrats, good independents, good Republicans. Unify with this ticket. Unify with Al Demings and Charlie Unify with us. Those who are haters, you're going to go off in your own world. And you better get right. Did you hear that? Chris said the quiet part out loud. I don't want your vote, but even more are saying it with their actions. So, Robbie, we're sort of aligned on this uh, okay, issue. So I think is he? Y'all can he? go and listen. Yeah, I mean, he had a radar that I also haven't listened to today about how student debt cancellation is bad. We're not yeah. listening to that. I was going to get on yeah. Robbie with something I was going to say. I, look, I, okay, I'll, I'll go ahead and get into this. I was get wrong, Bree. Um, you are rock and rising. Um, you seem to be finding your stride and the project that you're engaging in as far as speaking to a more conservative audience and finding a way to effectively communicate your critiques and policy prescriptions, I think has been wonderful. I really, really enjoyed it. And I know it was rough at first and I was being a big baby and I was all sad. <laughs> See, I'm emotional. 
<laughs> so I admit it openly. So I, I just, I have to say that I was wrong and you're really rocking it. And I can see um, why Robbie is very likable. He's, he's very charming, <sighs> but he just has to take everything to the extreme and be stubborn about things completely unnecessarily. And he almost drags you into territory where you can't, suss out anything almost like arguing with like a religious person about something that is in the realm of belief you know what i mean yeah i think that's i think that's right i think he if you if, if your starting principle if your foundational principle is that the government should be small and shouldn't do things like you know it's frustrating but at least you know where you stand it, it, it is like a religion like you're not going to argue with someone who's like okay jesus is the son of god who died for our sins okay like <laughs> that's your bag <laughs> That's fine. I know what I'm working with, you know? It is, it is what it is, but, like, I find it to be, I don't know, I find the moral implications of that to obviously be, be dastardly. But yeah, because if he isn't willing to pop the hood on any of those beliefs, then what are we doing here? Right. Now, I also have my own scripture, and it's that human beings have intrinsic value, and we should do everything we can in the richest country in the history of the world to provide not just a bare minimum, but a fulfilling, happy life for everybody who we can provide that life to, and including, by the way, outside of our national borders because we owe a debt to the world because of how we've exploited the world. Hmm. We live in a global community. Now, other people will feel like that's a weird gospel that they can't convince me out of, and it is what it is. I won't be convinced. I'm sorry. But the implications of that are very broad, though. That's very different from being uh, prescribing that government is. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, what, I'm correct. I'm uh, moral and right. <laughs> but obviously, that's a subjective point of view. And Robbie feels like the downstream effects. It's a kind of like a free speech, free, free speech absolutism. And I, mm. and I relate to that, right? Like I am inclined toward free speech absolutism because even though it shakes out sometimes in ways that aren't good for me and my personal agenda, like I don't like the KKK marching around or, you know, I don't mm. like people saying transphobic things on Twitter. Like I get that. But at the same time, I am concerned with what the broader implications are going to be for my own personal political project. And it's worth it for to take some hits in my view for to have the broader freedom. Now, Robbie feels the same way about government. He feels like the the moral failures of government overreach are so toxic and problematic that he would rather leave the society to the vagaries of the free market and what comes, what may, we'll figure it out. I personally believe that the risks are much higher than just limited in a free speech context, let's say, and that he is basically saying it's cool for him because he's an affluent, able-bodied, straight man, all of the things, and he can build his little castle and be safe within it and not have to deal with the consequences of there being no government support. Of but course, does he think- care about people? Because if you're going to throw, you know, if you're going to throw humanity to the dregs of the market, you couldn't care about people because it's so obvious that the market can't take care of human needs over a long period of time. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, like, do you even care about people, bruh? I mean... That is a very interesting conversation that I hope to be able to actually have with Robbie on the podcast, on the on the show someday. But here's the problem. I sound like I'm a imperious scold if I come at Robbie like, you don't care about people and I do. I mean, that's kind of the attitude that Bati is criticizing here, that we frame everything in moral terms, even if we're operating in bad faith. And I obviously think that I am operating in good faith, but to the passive listener, they don't really know that. And there is a way... 
that those kind of arguments can seem really manipulated and unfair if they aren't substantiated. So I think one has to work up to that. Um, but like, yeah, I think that day is definitely coming, John. I hope so. Um, I, I really do. And I, I never got to say happy birthday. Happy birthday, big Leo energy over here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, oh, you're a Leo too? I am. I'm a Taurus. Okay. Don't, so. don't say it like, like, like that's a, something to be in shade of. Oh my, God, we're such my sticks in ascendant, the mud. My ascendant is in Taurus. And so that's the way I like what's my face to the world or whatever. Right. Oh, Bree. So that, yeah, you, you're like double fixed sign. So you like, that's tough. I'm, I'm a little bit of a stubborn filly. It's true. <laughs> I like it though. I'm into it. Um, congratulations on Jink as well. Um, it was a good day to be a fake leftist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and I have to say. They try to get me in trouble. <laughs> no, it was good. It was, and you know, lately I've been hearing Vosh, um, you know, talking about the side of his neck. And I really wish that you could like very quickly, lightly kick that soapbox and allow the weight of his own foolishness to collapse under it because I'm sick of the clowning. Um, uh, who is that? Did you say J- Vosh? Vosh. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't uh, feel the need to engage or really that's probably good. That that's a thing that happens on the internet. <laughs> that's, that's my stance on that. But I'm really glad he likes to promote my videos. So there's that. Well, yeah, there's that too. So yeah, look, look I'm. A, oh, I, there was one more thing on the FBI abolishment thing. Mm-hmm. This seemed to be like an understated argument, and not necessarily by you, but just in general of everybody. I think this is actually the perfect time when our side is having a perceived win with this whole seizing of Trump, um, because if we tried to do it at any other time, we'd be accused of doing it in bad faith. You know what I yes. mean? Like. Yeah, I, I haven't heard many people talking about the argument, and that's such a huge one. Like, you know, Jenk was going on and on, but we have to, but we, we got him, we got him. I'm like, first of all, we don't got him, right? you know, and, and second of all, this is, this yeah, this is the perfect time, so. Yeah, I yeah. think that that's an excellent point, you know, and again, you, it's your, it's your power to design it however you want to design it. It's the same, it's literally the same thing, by the way, with the student debt stuff. In a moment where people are making all of these potentially, yes, bad faith arguments about how we should do this, that, and the other, and the alternative. In a moment where the conservators saying, oh, but the FBI is a problem. This is your opening to say, oh, you want to do this, that, and the alternative? Oh, you want to reform the FBI? Okay, queen, let's do it. Let's get it. You call them to the mat on your terms. And I, I interviewed, um, well, you guys will hear it on Thursday, Scoop. I, you know, I interviewed Ro Khanna again today about this question. And I was like, oh, it's shit. insane to me that you guys aren't making this argument on TV. And how about through our interview, he had to stop and do a Fox News hit. And when he came back, he said, I tried it out. And I think you're right. <laughs> I think you're right. That's a good argument to make. But I'm like, literally, though, why are the progressives not foregrounding this legislation, which exists? Because Bernie put this all out. You were a co-signer of it, bro. You put this legislation out. And it's not enough for you to say to me, oh, yeah, well, I agree with that. I, I supported the legislation. This is your moment to be heralding it. When all of these jokers open their mouths and say, well, we should have been doing this other thing, slap that HR whatever down <laughs> on the table in front of them and be like, okay, homie, sign it. Right. Sign it then. Sign it. <laughs> I, I, I can't wait to hear this conversation. Look, to everybody, once this episode drops, everybody, 
I got Rokana dartboards I'm selling on the internet because it's, I can feel it. I can feel it in the air, Bree. I can. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see. We'll see what you guys think. You know, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult out here. Sometimes, you know, I really do just want to have a pop culture podcast, but we're, we're doing our best. I'm doing my, one I'm doing of these my days, Bree, maybe the world will level out enough to where we can. Yeah. Just relax. Yes. Well, look, thank you for calling in, Ja. This this queue is long as hell, and we have already been on for almost two hours. So let's. I'm going to try to do a little bit of a rapid fire to get some people in. And I see some people talking about getting kicked to the back, and I want to help them out too. So thank you for there calling you in, Ja. Let's try to keep these short. I know that's on me too. Um, keep the faith. Okay, Isaac, you're up. Unmute yourself. I saw that you got you lost your place in the queue. I <clears throat> I did. Can you hear me? I can. What's on your mind this evening? Uh, first from the last debrief that you did, you talked a lot about Dark Brandon, but (laughs) my focus was on Dark (laughs) Brie because that, that episode was hilarious. So yeah, I was laughing out loud basically the entire time. (laughs) I'm glad you enjoyed it. It was nice to just enjoy a little bit, like a little fraction of a win for a second before we got serious again. Oh yeah. Let loose. (laughs) <laughs> I've, uh, sorry, I've been thinking for a second about what exactly I was going to bring up. Uh, first of all, I've never had COVID. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. See, and not I've, everyone gets it. No, and I, I'm I work in a very public space, mm. and like I'm masked the entire time uh, until when I could get a booster. Mm-hmm. At which point I, well, and then once I was actually like past the waiting period for getting a booster, I stopped wearing a mask. Um, and I, like, I've been sick, but I get tested every single time. And yeah, I, I have not had COVID. Yeah. So what do you make of the, I mean, how does it make you feel when people make the arguments that like everyone's going to get it? Because I don't, I know I sound Pollyannish when I say, well, no, it's not. Everyone's going to get it. But the, the thing that I really bo- that really bothers me isn't the idea that, it, you know, we could all succumb and eventually maybe, yeah, maybe most of us will succumb. It's that saying it in those terms seems to lift any accountability off of those who are responsible for, for trying to minimize how many people get it. Yeah, I I can't stand that argument. Any time that people bring it up, I'm like, oh yeah, everybody's going to get the flu this year. But we saw that when people are actually taking precautions and uh, avoiding getting COVID, that the flu that we were used to having every single year basically went extinct. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It just, it just feels like, and I said this to Robbie so many times on the, on the show too, like, Stop giving Biden and the administration permission to not help you. There is a difference between mandates and lockdowns and ventilators and free masks and free testing and free vaccines. And you should not be making arguments that limit your ability and for poor people and working people's ability to actually have choices and how they work their way through, make their way through this crisis. Because you're so focused on arguing against those parts of the administration's agenda that were more coercive. You're not wrong to have been mad at some of that, I think. But 
don't make your argument so narrow that you lose sight of the fact that you're giving cover for Biden to withdraw the supports that enable people to truly have choice. I mean, not that he wants that help from Biden, though, right? I mean, he he's not a get like he said on the podcast, like, I'm happy for, you know, I'm, I'm I'd be ha- I, I think that you're right about ventilators. I think that we should have those installed. And da-da-da. like, I think I, I don't think that that he is against any of those things. I think he's in fact for those things, but I think there's no political capital. Maybe this is a little uncharitable to Robbie, but I think there's no political capital in arguing for ventilators the way there is in arguing against mandates. And I feel like we're going to be four years past the last mandate and people are still going to be tearing their hair out about how, remember that time the government mandated us. And it's like, I'm not trying to forget and not have some accountability, but just can you do two things at once? Can you say mandates were bad and also Biden should give us this at the same time? Is that possible? Because, you know, I tweeted, that, you know, I was talking about this on, a, on the show and Kim tweeted, you know, Brianna, you know, at me that a lot of people have been talking about ventilators. And I was like, great, Kim. Like, truly, I'm glad and I hope you keep talking about it. But I got to be honest, I've never heard you say anything. I mean, like not her personally, but I've never heard most people say a goddamn thing about ventilators. You know, I'm not hearing anybody, even people who I'm learning a lot from and who I appreciate listening to and I have no shade for whatsoever. But I don't hear, I definitely heard like Max and Jamie and when people talk about mandates and the downsides of them, all of that, like fair, fair enough. I'm not hearing that same energy to, are we going to get the free stuff that helps us get through this crisis? And, and they do a little bit. I've definitely heard Jimmy say like Biden is ramping back. Um, the testing and stuff like that and complaining about it. So I credit where credit's due. But it does seem to me to be the, to be the case that the overwhelming majority of the discourse is about how Biden did bad things and not that he should do more of the good things. So I don't know. I like that whole line of thought, I guess, goes back into like the libertarian aspects of what were being discussed on the actual episode because you know you talk about ventilators but like wouldn't dealing with preventative measures be you know it's a yes and but like they're they're both good yeah i mean so i by ventilators obviously i'm sorry i mean the hvac system like the air air purifiers that is a preventative measure yeah 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 Okay, now I understand what you're saying. Yeah, sorry, my bad. No, no, no. Uh, backing it up, though, to the dark Brie thing, uh, I just had a my questions I remembered is uh, what what value do you think polemics have? What do you mean? So... Polemics, and it's a, a little bit of a slippery word, but as far as I can tell, it's basically just like deriding the opposite side's position and like putting yourself above it in kind of a silly way. Like like uh, Milton Friedman, if you go to his Wikipedia, it's going to say he's a, an economist and a polemicist. And the reason that he's considered that is because any time that he would be talking with people, he'd be like, oh, you're such a fucking moron. Like, you just don't understand how good the free market is. I mean, so I don't know. I don't know that. (laughs) 
I mean, there's 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 something that I think that could be described as polemics that isn't necessarily quite the ad hominem approach. <laughs> um, but I I generally don't think that things that border on shaming or kind of personal attacks are helpful. No, like I, I think that there's a world where my with people already agree with me. Yeah, it feels good to say, oh, Ben Shapiro's a schmuck or whatever. But no, I don't, I don't think it's helpful. I think that you gain credibility by taking on people's arguments in good faith, even if they aren't intended in good faith. I think that there's a reason why my discussion with Chank resonated the way it did as compared to some of the screaming matches that have happened between various members of the XTYT family over the years. I think polemics work for the, uh, the choir, or when you're preaching to the choir, I don't think you gain a lot of new followers, generally speaking, unless it's someone who's very, very new to everything and just is impressed by your power and force verbally. Uh, that's, that's okay, so. Yeah. Do you feel differently? So like, I, well, I'm, I'm not really sure just because there's such, like, specifically Milton Friedman. I like I can't get that person out of my mind. He's a fucking moron, but everybody who has paid attention to his work and I like f- has followed him and like tried to learn like the esoteric reading of like what he has said uh has kind of been entranced by that aspect of him and I don't think that it's like, you know, Ben Shapiro is a shithead, but more the performativity aspect of it kind of like the 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 fun joking nature of it you know i i'm afraid i just can't say i i don't i don't i can't speak to the value of milton friedman i've never read a thing that milton friedman has written that's just not my space so i have no idea i gotta say i can't i can't weigh in on milton friedman for you (laughs) on whether or not he's effective what he is the reason that, like, uh, Bill Clinton and Reagan and everybody else adopted the policies that they did and why everybody is so stuck on neoliberalism. I think there's a lot of reasons that people are stuck on neoliberalism, but I, I don't know what you want me to say. Like, it must have worked. Milton Friedman's style must have been the reason why it worked. And and so, therefore, we should all adopt his style? Uh. No, well, no, 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 that definitely not. Um, there's obviously more to it than that. Like he was speaking to powerful people um, who were aligned with what he was saying. But yeah, just in terms of commentary, I guess. Look, different things appeal to different people. And, you know, there are people who have a more... Um, aggressive approach, a more heated approach, a more confident approach that attracts a lot of people. And there are people who have a different kind of approach and that attracts a different sort. And I don't have a problem with people trying whatever works. But me personally, I don't, I, I want to have credibility. I want to be seen as someone who listens and tries to understand. And that's just my personal value. So while I want to, you know, Late, you know, release heat or whatever in these call-in sessions, or I might have a couple of things to say about somebody's radar or something. Like, I'm a human being. I'm not trying to act like I'm above it all. But at the end of the day, I know that that's not as effective as being respectful 
you're respectful because of what it says to the an audience broader than the person you're addressing about who you are and how willing you would be to hear them out. The same way that I think the death penalty and not supporting the death penalty is about what it means for us as a society and what it looks like to outsiders about how we treat people and what our value for life is. And it isn't really about whether or not it's technically meritorious for this person to like deserve to die or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that I wanted to bring it up just after, uh, I don't know when it was like a, a week or two ago when the whole Marjorie Taylor grain and trying to appeal to people in a different area, um, was the conversation and just what else could be there to try and bring people in. I'm, I'm sorry. You're you're saying that you you thought in the context of the Marjorie Taylor Green. I'm sorry. You're arguing that I was doing polemics or that I should have been more no. assist. No, no. Just just because in that moment when you have an opportunity and you have a lot of people who might be in a different media sphere mm-hmm. focusing on this space that there is that overlap, like what else could be done aside from just saying like, yes, defund the FBI, which I like agree with everything that you've said. I'm just trying to um, pull Look, something really else honest, in. That... I, I wish we lived in a world where I could invite Marjorie Taylor Greene to have a conversation about what that looks like and have the support of leftists who have drafted policy that I could push her on and bring her to the table. But I know that if I had responded mm-hmm. to her tweet saying, let's, let's have a conversation, a conversation in which I think I could have really exposed her as someone who wasn't willing to come to the table in good faith and actually propose meaningful reforms. Like I think it would have been productive for everyone involved, including exposing, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene in the ways that many people presume she should be exposed as a bad faith actor. But I couldn't, I knew that I couldn't do that. That if I even acknowledged her tweet in any way other than saying, fuck you fascist, that I was going to lose all <laughs> any and all credibility that I had with the left and really open myself up to more of this fake leftist stuff. And it just wasn't worth the heat. And so that sucks. Cause that's a lost opportunity. That sucks. Like, I think the left is shooting itself on their foot by putting me in that situation where I have to decide between doing something that I ultimately think is good for the left and bringing, calling Marjorie Taylor Greene to the mat or letting the opportunity slip away. And there are people who could have done it, like AOC, people with more credibility than I have, absolutely could have done it. But with me already being labeled as, you know, a fascist, Putin, racist, white supremacist, anti-Semite, every other thing every day of the week. I'm sorry. I can't do it all. (laughs) Like I can't, I just, I didn't want that smoke. And that really sucks. Marjorie Taylor Greene retweeting me should have been seen roundly as a win for the left and an opportunity for us. And the fact that, Mm -hmm. you know, I had to let that go. That's a loss for everyone involved as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Um, the only other thing that I had, and I'll just throw it out there and not, you know, open a huge discussion, was uh, I had just been thinking about co-opting the narrative of decline and if that's possible for socialists. Because that's such a, like, everything that happens on the right is like, oh, God, look what's happening. Like, this is going to ruin society. And it, like, and it 
like the reactionary mind jumps on that so quickly and there are reactionaries like everywhere if that would be possible to take into our toolbox i mean do you think that the left doesn't talk about decline in that way not no not in the same way especially since we're trying to wrest power be, well, because like decline <laughs> yeah de decline is just like oh man like if you let trans people use the bathroom they want to use that is going to result in society crumbling well like the, the left and liberals alike have been for decades saying look at these populations they're doing less well than the mean racial groups are discriminated against and they're doing poorly year after year education system is on a decline test scores are down the environment is getting worse sea levels are rising carbon dioxide in the air is up uh you know, increasing numbers of children live in poverty. There's food insecurity. There's an obesity epidemic. There's an opioid epidemic. Uh, at this number, of people die every year from a lack of health care. Like, I feel like we say those things, too. And then I also think that the, the right periodically chooses to say everything is great, actually. This is the best economy we've ever had. Uh, this is the lowest black unemployment rate we've ever had. Yada, yada, this is what Trump used to say. So I don't really think it's about that, me personally. I think it's about figuring out how to frame, acknowledge things that people really are suffering from and frame it in terms of solutions that can fix fix that particular issue and not necessarily, I don't think it's about framing it as a trend up or a trend down because both sides selectively do that when they're in power or when they're not in power to make their case. And I think what people are frustrated with is the idea that People exploit whatever statistics to prove their point while ignoring the underlying status quo under every administration of precarity for the majority of Americans, or at least a strong plurality of Americans who are living 40% living pay paycheck to paycheck. So, I mean, like, I, you know, I expect to give a different point of view, but I don't know that I see it as an issue of not claiming decline, language of decline enough. Because if anything, I think a lot of, a lot of conservatives accuse the left and liberals of being overly pessimistic, and they adopt this Steven Pinker stance of, oh, but everything's better now because of capitalism than it used to be before. Right, and I, I'll, like, the only place that I've landed on that is just like a lack of, I, like, uh, I guess scientific literacy would maybe be the word, but just like correlation does not imply causation, and like if people could understand that they'd be like okay capitalism is not necessarily yeah. the reason we are where we are is where we are um and i don't i'm not saying that like we need to do more of this or that i was just kind of throwing it out there um just just before i had out somebody way long ago in the chat had mentioned second thought and uh the work that he does and wanted me to bring that up while if I got called in. Okay. I'm not, uh, I don't think I'm familiar, but I'll give it a Google. Yeah. Um, second thought, he's a YouTuber. Uh, once I think 2020 and COVID hit, he actually, he used to do scientific things kind of like Kurzgesatz, if you know who that guy is. 
Um, but then once 2020 hit, he switched into doing nothing but socialist content and actually got visited by, I think, the Dep Department of Defense or like Homeland Security or something just because of the videos that he put out about like the CIA being a terrorist organization. Oh, interesting. Okay, I'll definitely check it out. Thanks for calling in, Isaac. Yeah, thank you. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. All right. Uh, let's go to. I'm gonna. I'm gonna hop right. I'm gonna hop right back here. To Gary. What's on your mind this evening, Gary? Hey, what's going on, Bree? I'm good. What's What are you thinking about? What's on your mind? <clears throat> Okay, so, you know, very, very interesting show today. Um, I will say I'm always bringing the different perspective, obviously, because I'm not, you know, a leftist. I'm, and I, I think it's important to acknowledge that most of the people who listen to Verizon and probably even follow you as that by an extension are, don't, you know, are not labeled. They're not conservatives. They're not leftists. They're, they don't identify as anything. They just listen to what you have to say and take it uh, as objectively as they can. And so that's very important, too, because, you know, a lot of times people are speaking from a leftist or conservative perspective or at least looking for that, you know, perspective and then they're speaking kind of past the majority of people who don't, have, who don't fall into any of those categories or look at things from any of those frames. So I think it's also it's very important to, to recognize that. All right. So what is, your, what is your perspective as someone who doesn't identify as a leftist on today's episode? Well... Uh, well, it's just, for, I speak for myself, but definitely for most people, um, like leftist doesn't really even like have a definition. So it's not, it's not going to like, there's not going to be a, like a leftist. Well, I don't know. I don't know that I agree with that, but I don't necessarily want to debate that with you right now. I'm just curious about what you think about today's episode. Oh, well, from on a personal level. On a personal level, I, 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 I feel like, Batia's point of view is is very important. I feel like anyone who out of hand sort of dismisses a lot of the concerns that she has with the Democratic Party, particularly the ones who are vociferously in favor of the the loan forgiveness. Oh, well, it's not really loan forgiveness. It's kind of just like you know giving people money for their for their um, expenditures. Um, it, I feel like dismissing that is kind of at your own peril. I feel like. And like I said, it's not necessarily that you have to agree, but to kind of issue or di diminish the the people who have concerns, I think is um, it kind of, I feel like you're missing um, le legitimate critiques. And like I said, you acknowledge the critiques um, while you were speaking about it, but I, but there was some dismissal there that, like I said, is... Um, so what, Gary, specifically do you think is a legitimate concern that I was too dismissive of? Well, one is that it seems like it seems very self-serving. Yeah, Who does it serve? Yes. Who's it the serves. Self that's being served. It serves the, the people who, who um, well, obviously went to college. People who went to college and and but, but that which is the bad, a small minority of people. But who are the people who are passing this? Who are serving themselves? Like a self-serving suggests that the people who are advocating for it are themselves advantaged by it. But nobody who's in Congress 
passes the income threshold. So obviously none of them are actually being personally being served by it. I'm certainly not being served by it because I make more than the income threshold and also grad school debt isn't addressed. Or that's unclear, actually. I'm not sure about the grad school debt. But either way, I don't benefit from it. So who is being served? Who specifically is being served? Do you think that it's that the people who are advocating for this policy are themselves the beneficiaries of the policy? Well, I mean, that is that is the question. I think you're asking the perfect question. At the end of the day, when you look at the uh, like the downstream effects of the policy, the exact question you just asked, who's who does it serve? Who benefits? Who reaps the benefits from this? Because well, it comes answer, from everyone's coffers. Well, the answer is, you know, well, first of all, it doesn't come from everybody's coffers. It comes from nobody's coffers. I mean, it comes from taxpayer. No, it no, it doesn't. So we people who took out student debt are all taxpayers. Of course. And it the 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 debt is owed. The federal government gave out federal loans that have been paused for two years, and what it's doing is to say we're just going to extend that pause. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna cancel. They could extend that pause forever, which would cancel all the debt. That doesn't cost anything, and just like it hasn't cost anything in the last two years. They're just saying, just like if I if I lent you ten dollars, Gary, is that actually you only have to pay me back eight? That's what's happening here. So it didn't it didn't cost anything. I just said, okay, you only owe me back eight. I didn't okay. have to pay. I didn't pay for anything extra. I just personally am willing to take the hit of not getting my two extra dollars back. Now, if you if you if you think there are some revenues that the government isn't going to collect because the government has been charging students, it has been profiting from the loans it extended to students so they could go to college because the government decided as a matter of public policy that students should go to college because it was good for the economy and good for the country to have people educated so that they can take necessary jobs. So the government decided it was going to be they were going to give out these federal loans as a policy. If if you think that they you know. It has now been charging interest on those loans so that people who were not rich enough to pay up front for their education are paying orders of magnitude more than the people who had rich parents. So, for example, my law school is going to cost me about $250,000, whereas someone who was rich and had rich parents only had to pay the original one hundred and eighty. So this policy is trying to get at the root at the problem where the, some of the poorest people people who did not have rich parents are paying more for the exact same benefit as rich kids. And so if you did, however, want to make up for the revenue that is not going to be collected by taxing all of those middle-class kids for having the audacity to take out loans and go to college, you could easily do that by taxing the rich, a policy which I very much support, but which unfortunately all the people who are complaining about student debt, like Batia, do not support. So I wonder, what do you make of the fact that Batia says that it's not fair to have a regressive tax on the poor, but doesn't actually support taxing the rich. I mean, it'd be, it'd have to, you'd have to go to the root of it because at the end of the day, we're in this problem because of the government loans in the first place. So, but it's hard to retroactively sort of, you know, complain about um, what has been reaped by all this government largesse going to these college students uh, and then them getting a reprieve, which I believe is deserved. Like I said, you can criticize it and still believe that these, this reprieve is, be like beyond deserved. Um, but it's, it's it, the problem here, and I almost like feel like I'm Robbie here. The problem is the government's 
um, involvement in the first place. And the government just kind of creates a problem and then comes up upon, comes in after the fact and kind of compounds the problem that they create. And, and the faster we can get the government well, out of the process. How does this compound the problem that it creates, that it has created? I agree the government created the problem. I think that the government did slavery and should have to pay for it. I think the yeah. government does a lot of things. I think the government sends people to wars where they die and they're maimed and they get they get congenital diseases from toxic exposure. And the government yeah. owes them to take care of them or at least their medical bills for the rest of their life. I believe that the government should have to pay for the things that it subjects its citizens to. Just like if I punched someone in the face and broke their teeth, I would be liable for their dental surgery. I don't see why the government should be any different. So I agree with you that the government created this problem. I argue that the government should fix it by making free public colleges and universities and fund that instead of funding these loans that can be used on sometimes exploitative private institutions. But Joe Biden doesn't support that, and Bhatti doesn't support that. I support it, but they don't. So again, I'm, I'm curious, you know, what is the solution here? Because by, we're doing this right now with Joe Biden because it's the only thing he can do by executive order. I would love for a lot of other things to be done, things that Bhatti doesn't support, things that Biden doesn't support, and things that all these people who claim to be working-class heroes don't support. But we're talking about student loan debt only because it is a federal problem, and it's federal dollars, and therefore Biden can do it by executive order and doesn't need Congress congressional support. So if that's the only thing that Biden can do to help, even if it's a, it's a partial solution, would you prefer that he do nothing at all and let the problem continue to fester? Like I said, I... I think that the people that he's helping deserve the help. Um, that's not mm-hmm. what I'm saying. Just, you know, I just agree that more people should be helped. And unfortunately, no one, there's no political movement to do that. And so it just makes this, you know, sort of makes this look like it's, it's, it's tailored to a, a more niche, more elite um, part of the population where, you know, and that's a fair, I feel like that's a fair perspective, even if I agree that these people deserve but the retreat. Like, I, I hear you, Gary, but what you surely make clear to people who raise that concern is that it would be amazing to do other kinds of policies that help poorer people and more disadvantaged people. But the person who is objecting to those policies are the same people who are complaining about student debt cancellation. Ostensibly, Democrats and even Joe Biden would support a lot of policies that could reform uh, debts held by a lot of other kinds of Americans. But this is a really important point. This is the only point that really matters. To the extent that student loan debt is not the most targeted policy to help poor people, that's entirely true. But it's the only thing Biden can do without getting Congress on board, and Congress won't pass anything. It's like I'm standing here... Um, it's like, it's like, it's like I am a Twinkie salesman and I have this huge Twinkie truck and I drive into a a community where people are starving. Do I think the best thing to do is to give starving people this horrible, disgusting, unhealthy food? No, but people are dying and I've got calories in my truck and it's like, you're mad at me for passing out Twinkies. Like, what do you want me to do? Let people starve? It's all I have. It's the only tool at my disposal. I totally understand. Um, can I? Can Twinkies I? Um, aren't Twinkies? I, I agree with you, but that's not all me. Don't be mad at the Twinkie truck guy. Be mad at the people who are holding up all of the nutritious food, and that is not the left. That is people like I'm sorry, Batya, who don't want to tax the rich and who don't want to fund social programs that actually help the poor. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, like I said, like the argument that they knew what they were getting into, I don't think um, kind of matches up to the idea that financial slavery is, is unacceptable. And so yeah. I think anything that we can do to, to kind of get these people out from underneath this thumb is, is important. Yeah, I'm with but you, Gary. I, I'm with you. I, I, but I think the, the, the debate, and like I said, to get into more fraught territory, do you think the class divide on, you know, on a, regardless of political affiliation, has grown so extremely during the, during the last two years that people look askance at, you know, whether they whether they're right or not, at these elite, you know, college graduate Democrats as people who have utter disdain for them and thus sort of question any any type of policy that they seem they feel is a giveaway to them because they feel like 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 I said, upper echelon cultural elite Democrats are sort of at, in a involved in a class war yeah. against people, you know, that they see are their inferiors. And you, and I feel like maybe yeah. over the last couple of years, it seemed like that perspective and that discourse has sort of been exacerbated by a lot of the yeah, policies. Yeah, for sure, for sure, Gary. Look, I think that that that, that aspect of it. What, what Batia is capitalizing on is for sure a perception that Democrats are out of touch. And I would completely agree that Democrats are out of touch, not for the reasons that she describes, but for other reasons. I completely agree. I'm not a Democrat, right? Like I don't identify as a Democrat. I'm very frustrated about the ways that Democrats have abandoned working people. And it is also true that Republicans have done that and even worse. I wish I vote green. I wish there were more third parties that were financially independent from all of the big banks and Wall Street interests and corporate interests that cause politics not to work for the people but to work for elites. But I don't I don't agree with Batia's project, which intentionally or not, often comes off as trying to poison people against left policies that are actually populist policies that a lot of conservative populists actually want and working people of all political stripes want. Instead of targeting Democrats, which is what I do, targeting corporatists of both parties she, in this radar, is putting a target on what is actually one of the more populist and progressive policies for working people that Biden has ever implemented and that Democrats have implemented in recent years. And I think that's really toxic and disgusting. But I completely agree that we have to push back against the perception that Democrats are a problem. I'm sorry, that, that, um, that, that you know, we have to push back against the elitism that I think is genuine coming out of uh, Democrats and Republicans. Just now I'm looking at David Sirota tweeted something earlier today where a columnist at the Washington Post wrote a column called Biden's student debt plan is a democratic version of trickle-down economics. It's a critic of his plan arguing that it is elitist, just like what Bate was arguing. But here's what they don't tell you, Gary. This same columnist, a woman named Catherine Rample, wrote an article for the Chicago Tribune in 2006 in which she defends legacy admissions. And that article starts, okay, I admit it, I'm one of those. I, the Princeton enrolled child of two insufferably tiger-obsessed Princeton alumni, am legacy. So here is an actual elitist, not, someone who not only graduated from Princeton or was in Princeton at the time, but whose parents both went to Princeton, which means I don't care how competitive a student she was, she got a huge boost in getting in, not on her own merits, but because her parents went to Princeton. 
who is now going to turn around and write an article saying it's not fair for kids whose parents could not afford for them to go to college to get a break on their student loan debt that they're paying, and which is going to co- cause college to cost more for them than they will for Katherine Rample, who I guarantee you whose parents could pay for college out of pocket and therefore did not have to pay the interest tax that the rest of us had to pay. Do you see what I'm saying here? This, this is the game that is being obscured by Batia's radar, and that's why we're so upset. She's not wrong about there being a perception of elitism among elites of both parties, but to use it and weaponize that kernel of truth against one policy that actually is going to help people like us and hurt people like Catherine Rample, like that's kind of fucked up. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Like I said, I think your your strongest um, point is the fact that oftentimes a lot of these conversations sort of avoid or uh, just... all outright dismiss the conversation around financing or affecting the cost of college education in the first place. I was having an argument about college this morning on Twitter, and it was about how, how important the SAT should be so that we can, you know, limit how many, you know, it decreased the amount of um, black affirmative action um, admissions and, and allow, you know, Asians in at the right amount. You know what I mean? And no one ever has these conversations about the cost of college. It's all about who's, who's allowed in, and who's yeah. being unfairly allowed in at the wrong numbers? Yeah, so, I, I mean, you're right. You have the you have the right perspective that the people are not even having the right conversation. Yeah, and yet they want to come so behind. Insightful. Yeah, yeah. So that's, it just, that's it, so it insightful because it, what it really is about is all the people who did go to Princeton and all of them. They don't want the value of their education to decline. If exactly. everyone gets to go to Princeton, or if, if everyone gets to go to college, if if there's a free public college where everyone gets to go, just like everyone can go to high school for free then suddenly the value of their degrees and their ability to hold themselves out as elite and better than everyone else is diminished. And that's what this is really about. And that's what's so pernicious that someone with a graduate degree, I think, I think she went to NYU to be honest from like the fourth best college in the, in the, in the country, Batia is going to sit around and pretend like she isn't advantaged by the degrees that she has and that she is with the, the policy she's advocating for amount to her pulling up the ladder behind her to preserve the value of her own elite education. I think that's disgusting. I know all too well, all of the advantages that I've gotten from having gone to Harvard. I know what I've gotten from unfairly because I went to Harvard and I would never want to deny somebody that access to that. As long as that system persists, everyone should have access to it. And also I'm going to work very hard for that inequitable system to no longer exist. And I think that Harvard shouldn't exist. I think that we should live in a world where people go to education not to get a one-up over other people, but because there's a value in learning. There's a value in knowledge, and there's a value in learning how to do specific kinds of jobs that enrich our society and our community. Indeed. Well said. And uh, just uh, I'm curious, so one of those uh, privileges from going to Harvard was uh, enjoying the greatest Indian food probably in the country at the Bombay Club at the Cambridge Gallery. (laughs) You know it. (laughs) Real talk. Those Sunday, those, sun, those, those Sunday, those Sunday afternoon, all you can eat, forget about it. I sit in four plates for those bad boys. You know what's funny? I only ate there like twice the whole time I was in college because I was such a cheapskate. That's the sin. That's terrible. <laughs> oh, you a cheapskate? It's literally all you can had, eat for like 10 bucks. I never, look, I hated not eating at the dining hall. I never had any money. Let me tell you, I wasn't, okay. look, I worked my little work steady job at, for a little, my little $8 an hour, which I thought was a boon. And when I had yeah. money, I was buying toothpaste. And bargain basement uh, spaghetti strap tank tops to wear out from the basement of Urban Outfitters. That's all it was for me. 
I respect. I respect the hustle. I respect All the right. Hustle. I appreciate you, you engaging, Gary. Thank you so much for calling in. All right. Take care. God bless. God bless. All right. Okay. Like I said, I was going to run through these really quick and I've been doing a terrible job. Henry, Henry, come up here. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you what's on your mind, but I got to tell you, I have to very quickly run downstairs and let someone in. So here's what I'm going to do. I don't want to end the call prematurely just because I have to let someone in the building. What I'm going to do is I'm going to start playing. If you guys just bear with me, I'm going to start playing Robbie's radar. But it's only going to go for like four minutes. I'm going to be right back. I just don't want there to be like dead time. I'm really, really sorry, but I just can't let my friend be lingering in the vestibule. So I'm going to be right back. I re- ignore this. This is a Jordan Peterson advertisement that is playing. <laughs> LOL. Okay, here we go. I right always back. say this, but today I really mean it. Robbie, I'm so excited to hear what's on your radar. All right. Well, if you watched Rising last week, you know that we talked about President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan a lot. And we're not done. It's something that myself and many of our libertarian and right-leaning guests vehemently oppose, whereas many of our left-leaning hosts and guests are in favor of it, although several of them think it doesn't go far enough. If you watched our commentary on this issue, you'll understand that we don't pull punches on the show as much as we agree on some issues that unite populists on the left and the right. We also do disagree, really, really disagree on some fundamental policy questions. We think it's important to have these discussions, these debates, these arguments, and have them civilly and respectfully as much as possible, but have them nonetheless. And it's not just for the cameras. When the video ends, we stop recording. Me and Brianna Joy Gray, who hosted with me last week, Tuesday through Thursday, we often continue the conversation with each other, debating just as aggressively as we do on the show. And the same has been true of other various pairs of hosts. We think it's valuable to show actual differences of opinion because, frankly, most other news and opinion shows on other platforms and other channels, they usually feature broad agreement between the hosts and the guests. Where's the fun in that? I think it's better to present a range of views and leave it up to the audience to decide who they think made the better case on individual policy questions. But here's the thing. All of us who host the show respect each other enough to argue in good faith. Make it heated, but we know that we all come from a well-meaning place. I would like to contrast that with how opponents of student debt forgiveness, like myself and like you, Bacha, have been treated by mainstream and progressive commentators elsewhere in the pundit sphere. So New York Magazine called Biden's plan an act of mercy that will ignite the class war. Writer Sarah Jones had the nerve to describe opposition to Biden's loan forgiveness plan as what it looks like when an elite class defends its territory. All right. How's it going so far, Henry? Talk to me. Hey, Brie, can you hear me? I can hear you. What what did I miss? Oh, nothing. You just missed Robbie being Robbie, I guess. Uh, I mean, nothing he he probably hasn't said in the the same podcast with you that we all listened to today. Uh, But, I mean, I guess my question about Robbie, as a guy who doesn't watch The Hill or Rising at all, is what, what is the deal with that guy? I mean, what is the reason why we should listen to him? Like, what's his credentials at all? Well, he's a journalist for a reason, and I think he does a good job articulating what a libertarian perspective is. And until recently, the dominant strain of thought among the Republican Party was this libertarian uh, emphasis, the kind of um, Rand Paul and Paul Ryan version of a Republican who's in the Trump years faded out of style. And now we have this faux populist Republican, right? And so maybe – 
Robbie's view was less relevant. It is useful for the context of the show to have someone who represents a right view that isn't so openly antagonistic because there are these points of agreements that the left has with libertarians, uh, particularly on uh, criminal justice issues uh, and anti-intervention like foreign policy. But, you know, mm-hmm. you don't have to listen to him just like you don't have to listen to anybody else. No, I'm just wondering. I, I mean, I've never gotten COVID myself. So mm-hmm. when I hear Robbie say, like, everyone's going to get it eventually, I mean, this seems to be his fundamental, like, aspect. It's just, he's the most, like, we're all out of ideas and we've tried nothing kind of guy, you know? I mean... It just, it seems like he doesn't really want to do anything about anything. Well, no, that, I mean, that's correct. And he will say that openly, <laughs> you know, because he's a libertarian and that's kind of their whole, that's their whole yeah. shtick. I mean, I just want to, I mean, I wanted to say like, lead or get out of the way, you know, and I'm not even the guy that loves saying like stuff like that, but it's just like, dude, like, what are you doing? Like, you're just here to tell us. <laughs> That, like we we've tried nothing like we've tried nothing we're all out of ideas i mean i it just seems like a circular like roundabout never-ending ouroboros with these people honestly i uh, like yeah. we can't you know like this is bad because it's taxing the poor but we can't actually tax the rich i mean i don't know i i don't know 100%. i I think they all lose yeah. credibility. I mean, obviously, I mean, it is consistent for libertarians to not want to do anything at all, including tax the rich. But I do, I mean, I'm sorry. There's not someone who is a populist. There's not somebody who is a leftist. There's not someone I'm, I think that you should think of for even. No, it's totally fine. Who, who won't tax the rich. If someone won't tax the rich, I honestly don't give a shit what they have to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess what I really wonder about with Robbie is like, did he take out student loans and then work hard and then pay them back? Mm-hmm. Is he trying to sell that as part of his story? So I don't believe we've talked about it enough that I think that if he had ever at any point had student loans, he would have said so. Now he did go to the university of Michigan, which is a public institution and is somewhat cheaper than private institutions. Okay. I will say yeah. my, you know, I always am talking about my friends and people, but like the, public defender that I often mention in the show also went to the university of Michigan and had significant student debt from undergrad because he came from a, a very working class family, a single parent whose dad worked on the assembly lines in Detroit. Uh, yeah. And yeah, he went to, he did the right thing and went to a public school and still had student debt, like uh-huh. double digit student debt. So well, what I think about <laughs> with uh, Robbie and the kind of story that these people are trying to paint, if like, if he is trying to make a case about people who never took on student loan debt or people who took on student loan debt and are having to pay it off, or had, sorry, had paid it off already, are in a grieved party because of this student loan forgiveness program, then, I mean, I myself never took on student loan debt. I defected to Canada for four years to go to cheaper university. Smart. And so kind of a similar story for me, honestly. But like, if I'm a part of the target audience that's supposed to be in a grieved party because of my peers getting their student loan to get for, debt forgiven, then it's like, I just don't care at all, honestly. Yeah, because and... you're not an asshole, my friend. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, but like, same. Like, I paid off my under... Like, there's a world where... 
even when I was paying off my undergraduate debt, some people advised me that that was stupid because the interest rate was lower than for my law school debt. But at the time, I was in law school, and I was so panicked about it that I just started paying it down as soon as possible. It wasn't smart, but I did it. So there's a world where I, I'm, I'm aggrieved because I should have held on to my undergraduate debt so that my grad school debt could be paid for. I mean, you know, there are all kinds of ways that people yeah. aren't advantaged by it. They're, they're, think about this. There's some poor sucker out there who makes $126,000 a year. <laughs> Who's not going to get student mm-hmm. debt cancellation because they're like marginally above the cutoff, even if they have an enormous amount of debt. And even if they're precarious, there's somebody who, you know, depending on what tax year qualifies you for this, is going to be in or out based on by a financial situation that they're not actually in anymore. People who've lost their jobs, who are still not going to be able to take advantage of it because in the 2021 tax year, it shows that they earn too much money. I mean, there are all kind of injustices that happen every time any policy is implemented. Right. And all you can so do many is people to... are going to not really be affected by this that much. Yeah. I mean, all you can do like that saying that there is some imperfection in the way the policy comes down it's just an argument against doing anything which frankly is like libertarian and not something you expect from a leftist or democrats so look layer policies do lots of things for lots of people try to fill the holes try to capture everyone also cancel medical debt also address um usurious credit card debt which bernie and uh, aoc had a plan for that i think probably you know frankly didn't go far enough do all of the things to try to capture all of the people who are in need but what kind of perverse politics do we have where instead of saying, yes, and yes, let's do your thing too, people are feeling like it's a zero-sum game. People are in that zero-sum game mindset because we live in a world where maximum one good thing happens per year and everyone wants to make sure they're in that group. They've created this reality where people are like crabs in a barrel because the expectation is that there's only going to be one group or one person helped in a given cycle, and that's messed up. Right. It's pretty sad. I mean, $10,000 is a pretty small amount in the grand scheme of things. Like, it's going to help a certain amount of people who have around ten dollars to $20,000 or whatever of student loan debt. They're going to be, like, great for them. But for people who have a ton or people who have none, it's not going to make that much difference. And in the grand scheme of things, we're all still going to be on the same capitalist treadmill that we were on yesteryear, getting pushed further into debt, you know? The whole our whole society is set up to drive us into medical debt, student loan debt, credit card debt, every single type of debt. Anyways, that is a fundamental aspect of capitalism: is that you're always having to pay more or about the same as you're taking in, at least for most people. So 100%. there's going to be plenty of debt tomorrow. You know, 100%. cancel cancel it all. There's going to just be more debt tomorrow. There's always going to be more debt. Don't worry about that. And that that really is the thing, right? Like. I imagine a world where let's say, let's say I don't, I don't have any credit card debt and I could sit around being morally superior saying, I will pay off my credit card every month. Why should, uh, why should Biden have a policy to cancel credit card debt? What I'm really saying with that, what that would really mean is that I want to keep my relative position of superiority over other people who can't do the things that I can do and can't buy the things that I can buy and can't rent the apartments that I can rent because I have more money than they do. And what I'm really complaining about is me not having that relative superiority over the other person. It doesn't obviously hurt me. It doesn't change my life if someone else no longer has They're fundamentally telling on themselves. Exactly. 
Exactly. It's the exact same thing with these student loans. The people who are like, I already paid mine off or I did the right thing or I worked hard. They're just saying, I don't want you to level up to me. I want to stay in a superior position. And it's so perverse. And it just boggles my mind that they are loudly crowing. I'm a terrible person. And they don't even hear themselves doing it. Right. Yeah. Give themselves the rope to hang themselves with, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Thank you so much for calling in, Henry. Yeah. Thank you for taking my call. All right. Keep the faith. All right. I'm heading back here to Nicole. What's on your mind tonight, Nicole? Can you unmute yourself, Nicole? Did I catch you off guard? Hi. Can you hear me? You were unmuted for a second. Can you hear me now? I can. Excellent. Hi. How are you? I'm doing well. What are you thinking about this evening? I am actually calling about New York politics, if you will indulge me. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So Yulin knew, mm-hmm. not my favorite con- candidate, not one mm-hmm. that I voted for. I'm in her mm-hmm. district. Very problematic. But um, she did not win the election. She came in second. They're mm-hmm. still counting votes, but it looks like she came in second to Dan Goldman, who was a very conservative candidate. Mm-hmm. She is a Working Families Party candidate. Mm-hmm. So she could run on the Working Families Party line mm-hmm. for the general. And I was just curious about what your thoughts are about that, because it would seem to me to be uh, a good idea to you know, support basically a third party mm-hmm. in that race. If you had been following that at all. or Yeah, so if you haven't heard it, I think episode before the last one, I think last Thursday's episode was a deep dive into all of these shenanigans in New York with Ross Barkin. So that might be of interest to you. Um, and I t- asked uh, Roe about this today, what he makes of Yulene making a third party run on the working families ticket. And so you should tune in on Thursday to hear his answer to that. My view is that regardless of Yulene not being kind of our first choice as uh, progressives, I think it sets a good precedent for progressives doing what we just saw uh, Mayor Brown do to India Walton in Buffalo, which is to keep fighting if you can. And in a district like the 10th, which is basically like, you know, the West Village in Chelsea, where there's a lot of opportunities to like kind of appeal to a more progressive audience. In Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, yeah. And where you saw... The outcome, the the vote totals suggest that there are twice as many people interested in progressive candidates as the centrist candidate. The issue was the split, not the interest level, right? You know, it was fairly close, almost evenly divided. I mean, not quite evenly divided, but like um, between the top three. And so if Mondaire hadn't been in the race, there's no really question that um, you would have won. Like, why not go for it and see if you can pull those people out again, especially since it was a weird off-cycle election and all of this stuff in the new redistricting. You know, there was a lot of reasons that you would think that she might actually be successful. So why not shoot for it? Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, again, I, 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 I think there's some, some problems with her, but um, I do think she, she was the progressive choice. And I think even if I personally don't love her, I think there's I think that she is – would be somewhat beholden to the Working Families Party progressive line. Um, and I think it would be a real opportunity. And so I was just curious uh, because it's a, I don't think people are really sort of paying attention to that. They've just decided 
she's lost, and Dan Goldman is going to be, you know, the the next uh, congressman. So that's yeah, why I, I was think just I'm curious. I'm going to try to get her on. Um, I'm not sure if she, you know, when it's going to go from kind of a speculative race and when she's actually going to declare, or if she maybe has already said she's going to run on the working families line. Um, but regardless, I'm going to try to get her on the podcast soon because I think it's worth talking about. Because I do That's think this could pretend a broader, um, a broader strategy for the Working Families Party. You know, we have been having this conversation. Is it going to be Ford? Is it going to be Green? Is it going to be MPP? I mean, I think a lot of people would love the idea of the Working Families Party taking a more adversarial stance. Now, whether they're going to do it, given how they behaved in the 2020 election and how many people feel like they aren't quite as progressive as we would have liked. At least the leadership isn't. Obviously, the rank and file voted to endorse Bernie, and the organization decided to go in a different direction, and people feel how they feel about that. But, yeah, it's definitely worth having a conversation about. And I mean, I don't, I don't know if you know Tish James uh, mm-hmm. won the Working Families Party line against the Democrat in the, when she was in the city council. So, and she, after she won that election, she really did some very good things. I, I, again, I'm not, I'm not, I don't love everything that she does, Mm -hmm. but as a city councilwoman, she was extremely progressive and she was good Mm -hmm. and she won that line and against Mm -hmm. a Democrat and Mm -hmm. it's happened a few times and it's, it would be very good. I mean, again, I, I also have, you know, I'm a, a person who comes from a union background and the working families party had a very different origin story than it current and it's gone in a really different direction than it currently is now um and uh there's you know a lot of problems working families party um but i do think i do agree with you and i i was just curious about your position so thank you yeah thank you for calling in i like that mix up of topic a little bit all right thanks have a good night you too keep the faith um, let's hear from, um, 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 how far back do I want to go? Let's hear from Adrian. How are you doing, Adrian? Oh, you, oh, okay, good. We can hear. When I tell you, you were like, who are we going to hear from? I was like, Adrian, <laughs> <laughs> please. <laughs> and Adrian! Like, Adrian, yes, what I tell you, and it's so funny. At one point in my life, can't remember if I shared it on this call-in, but I did another call-in. Um, I was doing stand-up comedy. Now, mm-hmm. I paused from doing that because I wanted to be a professional and I worked in education. And I was like, oh, these jokes will come back for me one day. Like, I was planning <laughs> for, I was avoiding wanting to be canceled before it was like a thing that people just <laughs> daily scheduled into their lives. But when I was standing up there doing comedy, um, well, I was on the sidelines and some guy was there. We were all nobodies, like no, nobody important. We're all up and coming and all that stuff. So he's like, Adrian, Adrian. And I had no idea where that was coming from. So I thought he was personally coming for me. So I get on stage and I was just like, he looks like heavy D. So I go, give it up for heavy fucking D, y'all. Doing fucking comedy in a shithole with the rest of us. You gotta love it. So there was just a little moment in time, but afterwards I was um, with a friend and, and they were like, Adrian, Adrian. I was like, why is everybody doing this? Like, what is this about? And then they explained it. I said, oh, that makes so much sense. I wanted to apologize to that comedian, but never saw him again. <laughs> Neither maybe one of us maybe he's a listener to the podcast. Well, if you're out there, I'm looking directly into the camera and saying, 
you've been punked. I'm just playing. I apologize. <laughs> I, I didn't know you weren't coming for me. But okay, let's get to it. So one, first things first, Leo season, August 9th. We're doing it. We're doing okay. it. Big. We're taking over. And you know what's so funny? I did not really care about any of that stuff until I, in my adult life, started meeting people. Mm-hmm. And it would always come up. They'd be like, oh, I would say, hi, my name is Adrian. They'd be like, oh, uh-uh. Leo. <laughs> and I would be like, huh? How did you know? And I would sometimes I would just be like, I'm not a Leo. And they look at me and they'd be like, You're full of shit. I know you are. I know you are. I can feel it. So Leo vibes. And when I um when I watch you, and especially when I watch you like when you're really in the zone and you're you're just deflating all this nonsense and pushing back, I'm like, she's tapping into that inner Leo right there. <laughs> She's keeping it, she's keeping it fun, she's keeping it classy, but she's keeping it fiery. That's that dark breeze that we were talking about earlier. So You guys are too much. So let's get into just a couple of things. One, I'm, we don't need to belabor this, but when you are not there as, on the hill, ooh, okay. we're just going to close that up real quick, but it needed to be said. I got on there today, I was like... Basically, the headlines were student loan debt cancellation is trash. Student loan debt. I was like, huh? Why are we still talking about this? And on top of that, where's the where's the the even split? I was like, I was listening to our friend, the person who's supposed to be on the left, but yeah, I was like, what is going on here? Am I in the Spider Verse? And I didn't even want to disrespect the Spider Verse, but I was so confused. So that's that. One thing that I do want to say about her, and I don't. I really do not mean this as an insult or anything, but to her point, to your point earlier about like how she engages with people, I kind of note this as the Kellyanne Conway effect, where because she's so nice, it's really hard to, it can be kind of challenging to push back on some of the ideas that people might be saying because they're being super, super, super nice. Mm-hmm. And that's like, I've seen the interviews, you know, Oh, I'm so excited to be on your show. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. It's kind of rude to be mm-hmm. like, well, let me slow you down and tell you about how you're wrong. Okay. Mm-hmm. You, you know, all that stuff. So I always try and wrestle with that. But I also will say off the books while this is recorded in, in front of a lot of people, <laughs> I do try and take the Kellyanne Conway approach. Sometimes I'm just like, be very, very, very nice it while works. you're arguing your point. And people were like, you know what? I wasn't going to agree with you because I thought this was going to be an argument, but I'm actually going to agree with one of your points. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or then they'll be like, I agree with the whole thing. So that was just that on that. So yeah. there is, um, I typically just take notes throughout the show. One thing that I wanted to talk about is, hmm. Oh, <laughs> when you had said, when you were talking about a little bit earlier, you had mentioned how because the way in which Joe Biden is basically picking picking aspects of the Bernie Sanders policy, um, very limited aspects of it, but diff- picking different components of the Bernie Sanders policy, like a la carte, it reminded me of that debate that you had with, um, what's that woman's name? Something Liz, Liz Wolf? I don't know. Oh, mm-hmm. The debate you had over healthcare, and she was just like, you were like, how do you solve the problem of people not being able to afford healthcare? Mm-hmm. And the response was, I agree, which is why I am proposing that people choose their healthcare a la carte. What you said, <laughs> I said, girl, we're not at brunch right now. What are you talking about? 
She said, pick it all la carte. Like, it's, let me have my MRI scan and also a bottomless mimosa and the chicken without the waffles for the chicken and waffles. Girl, that's not how this works. It's not. So I just was like, when, when you said a la carte, I was like, that's exactly the nonsense that we're doing right now at the policy level. But I was getting triggered and having flashbacks because, again, I just was like, what does that look like? Do I go into the, people say that stuff. You know, instead of doing Medicare fraud, we should just make the prices available and you can, again, pick them a la carte. And it's like, okay, so when I go into the doctor's office and the doctor, the person who has the information and the knowledge to solve my problem says, you need to get A, B, C, and D done. Am I supposed to just pick a la carte A and A or A and D, knowing that I need to do all four of these elements? It just doesn't even make any sense. (laughs) I mean, one of the most frustrating things about all of this is people having all of these objections and taking up so much room when they very clearly have never thought about the issue before like that week. And moreover, as a consequence are proposing solutions that are ass backward and just they, they, anybody with who like investigates it for half a second would know it just didn't work. Like I'm not, I'm not opposed to a conservative coming up with a solution to some of these issues, but for two mm-hmm. reasons, they don't, pan out one ideologically they don't believe in the government doing things which makes it hard to propose a government plan to do a thing and two Mm -hmm. even if they are kind of operating in good faith even if i i think that liz wolf does think it's a sad and bad thing when people can't afford health care but you whatever you're pulling out the bottom is so unthought through Like, you just haven't thought it through. And it's on some level, like, I want to be patient with people, but it's also very disrespectful when you haven't cared enough about this issue to give it a moment's thought and then to be opining with your big audience and your big stage in a way that leads people away from already vetted, tried and true solutions. And I'm not saying I have all the answers or the left has all the answers. I think that people come up with new policy proposals every day that are good and better than what people have innovated on in the past. But there's a trajectory to those policies, and it's not to the right. Yeah. Yeah. What it gives, I'm a teacher. I've shared that before. What it gives is people are showing up and they're making all this noise about how they hate doing all this work and all that stuff. And when you sit down and say like, hey, you know, this was a choice assignment. You could have made written your own play. You could have made a song. You could have wrote in the, read a story. You could have did whatever you want to do. Like, what do you want to do? You want me to help you out with this? And they're still screaming and yelling. It's just like, mm-hmm. okay, you just might want to drop the course. Because I don't know what to tell you at this point. It's just all this hollering and screaming. Yeah. So yeah. it's truly a mess. Now, the final thing that I did want to touch on was this. So I I think I was listening in on the call-in from last Thursday, I think. And then I ended up on another person's call-in um, and randomly got chose. Okay, mm-hmm. so woo, Adrian. <laughs> now, they were talking about the student loan debt, of course, because that was like a, a big hot topic. And one of the things that I said was, I want to be nimble in my assessment and evaluation of how these policies are being implemented and how they're coming to be. And I said, well, I believe that all student loan debt should be canceled. And then there should also be a plan in place to ensure that this problem doesn't happen tomorrow. Mm -hmm. The Bernie Sanders... um, tuition-free college it would be like, you know, something that would follow that uh, student loan debt cancellation. Mm-hmm. And so I was explaining, I was like, again, I want to be nimble and understand this, being able to zoom into like the weak scale of this as like 
zoom into like the daily, the day to day. So like last, whatever day that was Wednesday or Thursday, mm -hmm. as well as zoom out and look at this over the now 2016 plus the six years that this has really been like something that I've been aware of um, when Bernie Sanders again put this idea of canceling student loan debt on the map. Mm -hmm. So I was just like, you know, pointing that out. But the response that I got back from the host was, you need to want more to ask more or whatever. And I was like, listen, you don't have to tell me that because I'm the type, again, you ask for full student loan debt cancellation because you might as you might get like 50%, 75% or $10,000, whatever that is. But the point that I just want to raise is, so in my studies as a doc student, I have mm -hmm. been learning about critical race theory. Now I'm not a critical race theorist. So if you are in the chat, just, you know, feel free to <laughs> edit whatever gets said. Um, but I'm, I'm learning and in, in making my way through the, the content as well as understanding um, its origins. But one of the tenets of it is called interest convergence. And essentially, as I understand it, it is basically what it says, the converging of interest, um, meaning that policy gets done. So we looked at interest convergence through Brown v. Board of Education. It's not that they are saying we have to stop segregating our schools and we have to desegregate them and have black children and white children work together in the same class spaces. It's not that they say that because it's like, we realize we've been doing bad for a long time. It's time to get this right. It is because on the international stage, there's a lot of tension with the fact that they're telling other people they should be more free. The United States is telling other people mm -hmm. we should be free. Uh, you should be a freer world, Russia. You should be a freer world mm -hmm. inside whatever countries that are not. And because people are saying, well, how can you say that when you on your black uh, citizens mm -hmm. have second and third class citizenship? Mm -hmm. So in understanding that tenet of critical race theory of interest convergence, I said, oh, <laughs> if it was like, why didn't y'all start with this earlier? You're telling me the only way we get things is by aligning our interests with the uh, interests of the elites, converging those things together and keeping it pushing. So when... Mm -hmm. They're like, when I'm talking to people and they're, they're like, well, I don't like the fact that, you know, they're complaining about the student loan debt thing. And they're like, he should have did this. He should have did that. Why isn't he doing this? Why isn't he doing that? My viewing of this, this moment in time is, hey, 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 I agree with you. We should be doing a lot more. But let's lean into this, this moment where two interests have converged. Mm -hmm. Joe Biden. He is taking a lot of heat in these polls. It was not looking too good for him. Okay. The mm -hmm. people needed their student loan debt. Here these two need their student loan debt canceled as some mm -hmm. type of form of payment. Here they are coming together and now you see this policy implemented. Is it enough? No. But let's go ahead and take this for what it is. And I oftentimes feel like I see you, you know, you might not refer to it as interest convergence, but when you talk about the very real and important, um, I don't want to call it play or ploy, but strategy, I would, I would say. The very real and important strategy of exploiting and leveraging a moment, mm -hmm. it's just like people aren't getting it. If you're not going to do Medicare for all during the pandemic, goodness gracious, when are we doing it? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. another version of it, I mean, I think that you're right that sometimes it is like clean interest, interest convergence where 
it happens to be that your actual interests as a working class person mm-hmm. align with the interests of elites for reasons. Sometimes it's more that this like a political leverage point, which is a kind of issue convergence. You can frame it that way, right? Where because they want to get reelected, let's say their interest is mm-hmm. in getting votes or their interest is in staying in power, that they are forced to give you concessions. Or let's say their mm-hmm. interest is in not having the economy shut down by a labor strike, <laughs> mm-hmm. that they're willing to give into your demands. But the point is that there has to be, you know, power can see something without demand. Sitting around mm-hmm. saying, oh, Joe Biden, like, please fulfill your policy, your, your um, campaign promises. Like, it does nothing unless you're willing to not vote for Joe Biden unless you're willing to uh, strike in a way that is uh, disadvantageous for the economy and Joe Biden is responsible for, unless you're willing to, you know, actually have international solidarity, which is the point that Gerald Horn and other people on the podcast have made about why it's so important not to just be so siloed in our own politics. I mean, we live in a Mm -hmm. world where Russia is being pointed to as having infiltrated America's social media and been pushing messages about how badly America treats black people. Like, okay. I mean, it does not, not sound very familiar. We live in a world where it's still possible to shame America potentially on a global stage about how it's treating its own citizens. And the only people who are really making those kinds of contrasts are pretty maligned even within the left space. I know it's a very touchy space, and I'm not a foreign policy person, so I personally don't like to go there. But there are these robust conversations that come up every time China is mentioned. And people will say, well, China has all these civil rights abuses. And it's like, true, fair. Like, I am, have no interest in covering for or apologizing for anybody's human rights abuses. But if you want America to have the standing to truly go in and advocate on behalf of people in the rest of the world, I think it kind of has to clean house. So let's mm-hmm. clean house. That's not a defense mm-hmm. of China. That's to say, okay, like, yeah, I want to speak a credible, a credible um, critic on the world stage, so let's clean house. And I'm completely with you um, that yeah. people need to understand that when we're talking about a, a different kind of adversarial politics on the left than what liberals or even a lot of these elected so democratic socialists have, it is finding those tension points and exploiting them for the benefit of the left. Mm-hmm. I think a good example of that was when Elliot Engel was running. And I mean, like, you literally have this man on a hot mic saying, I would not be here if it were not for all of this protesting and chaos. Again, his interests of being reelected are right there. Unfortunately, it didn't converge in the way that he wanted, which is kind of fortunate for us. (laughs) We'll take Jamal Bowman, you know, all that good stuff. (laughs) But it's just like, it just doesn't make any sense. So that's all that I really had. Keep doing what you do. Keep living your best life. Have a mimosa or two. (laughs) <laughs> All of that good stuff. Um, but but actually, this is the final thing, and I'll leave. I'm not trying to come for Robbie. And I appreciate your professionalism. And I will say this. Not a however or a but. It's just that, and I will say this. There are times where I watch the show, and it appears to be that in real time, you are convincing him, <clears throat> or you have positioned an argument that is really just irrefutable. That is just, you have to accept it. And I could just, I feel like I see on his face, like, Brianna's right, but ideology has to take precedence. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, Robbie, do you want babies to die from eating baby food? And he's like, no, I don't like a lot of regulation. And it's just like, okay, Robbie, just stay right there. Do you want the babies to die? Look. You can just see it on his face. I sometimes feel that way. I know that he would deny it, so I don't want to put words in his mouth, but like. 
I will fully mm-hmm. admit to being shifted on some things, at least on this COVID stuff. At least I won't say shifted, but like being aware of a breadth of argument that is not does not exist in my political circle, and I appreciate him and the show for exposing me to that. Um, and I I think that this this exchange is going two ways, but only time will tell. Look, I appreciate you calling mm-hmm. in, uh, Adrian. I was gonna. I was yes, gonna pull I you out. Say, oh wait, here we go. Yes. Where is it? Oh, They're wait. Me out. Lol. See you, Bree. Have a great you night. Too. All right, Cynthia. Where did you go, Cynthia? Because I saw that Jonathan gave us a space for you. Jonathan, I saw that you said you put your post on Patreon, but if I come close out of the app, then I will lose everybody. Where'd she go? There you go, Cynthia. So drop your comment in the chat and I will read it. And Cynthia, bring us home. Hi, if you're in line for Brianna's call-in, stay in line. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Someone probably done that bit before. I apologize. <laughs> Um, well, okay. I'm, I'm the first question that I have is just with regard to that, like the taxpayers are paying for it, uh, argument because I want to be prepared because I'm going home this weekend. Mm. And I know that my like Tucker Carlson simp, uh, mother's boyfriend (laughs) is probably going to bring that up. So I really want to be prepared because when that argument comes up, I actually don't like, I haven't really don't, you know, where where's that argument coming from and is there any truth to that or like what is Wait, that so, so which part the richard so, paying for a part um, yeah i'm sorry i didn't give context yeah the the argument that like oh these elitists are the the working class are paying for the student loan forgiveness via their taxes is that true and like where's that argument coming from and how can i like easily rebuttal no. that tax revenue does not go toward this. First of all, like there's a bigger mm-hmm. conversation that your family shouldn't probably get into about how taxes collected don't go toward spending on anything ever. That money that is spent mm-hmm. on social programs is newly minted and has nothing to do with taxes that are collected. And that taxes are collected to take money out of circulation, but not to actually create a pool from which to spend on other things. And that's an MMT concept that is frankly a little bit beyond Mm -hmm. me. And I don't think it's really necessary to get to in the sake of this, for the sake of this conversation. But the point is that even if you're Mm -hmm. conceptualizing this like a personal bank account, which again, it's not, but even if you're conceptualizing it that way, this is the equivalent of saying that you lent money to someone and they do not have to pay you back. So you're not paying for anything new. You're just saying, "Uh, no, I'm good. I'm, you don't have to give me anything. So to the extent that you are forgoing revenue, I would challenge people to and ask why you think the government should be profiting off of loans given to students because the government thought it was a good policy for students to get an education. Why is it? Why do we want the government, of all of the ways it can raise revenue, to do so on the backs of students paying serious interest rates on education debt? But to the extent mm-hmm. that they want to replace the revenue that the government is foregoing, I'd say, don't you support it? Why don't you support it? a plan to tax the rich? I do. 
why not just tax the rich if you want more revenue? Tax the rich. And when people right. say they don't want to, then that reveals what their real priorities are. And I think the other point that it's really important to land is to not try to fight the idea that this is a policy that doesn't actually hit the lowest tranche of American the American economy. It obviously doesn't, right? How are people seriously out here making the, like I said in the chat, I was screaming when you were playing that Batya, that Batya clip. Like, how are people literally out here saying these arguments that are so easily dismant? Like, do they really believe they've got to be apps? Like, you're right. Like, how can they how how can they literally make those arguments when they're so easily dismantled? Like every single one. I don't. Yeah. Do they know? Yeah. But look, but on this on the specific point, though, I, I just really think it's important. I said this to Ro today, too. I don't think you should. If people say, aren't there more better people to spend money on? I would just agree. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. Agree. Well, you're twinking analogy. Yes. Exactly. exactly. Just just Wait, to, we can't agree, agree yeah. with people. And that gets you so much credibility. At which point you say, mm -hmm. and I hope you support those policies when we all advocate for them. But this is what Joe Biden can do right which now. They, yeah. Well, right. Which they don't. But yeah, that's a good way to. Okay. So the second thing is, I liked that you brought up earlier the uh, the pod save guys. And I randomly stumbled upon one of your old Bernie podcast episodes where you interviewed, uh, which John? One of yeah, the John Favreau. Mm -hmm. Yes. I, I actually think that having more... Uh, like mod, you know, like libs and stuff, guests are having these kinds of not even debates, but discussions would be really great because, and I know they're kind of like the, oftentimes the, um, the type of folks that we on the left kind of despise the most <laughs> in many ways, but I actually do really think that they could be galvanized. I mean, maybe I'm wishful thinking, but like you said, a lot of their arguments just fall apart when you're like, but do you not care about people? And then they're like, well, <laughs> you know, so. I think so too, but we, we all know that I'm a little bit of a pain pig. So fair enough. Mm -hmm. But I, regardless of whether you can actually change their minds, remember, this is what I said with Marjorie Taylor Greene too. It's about the, it's about their audience. And I think it's important, like one, if their audience listens to our conversation and is able to pick up on the tensions between what a leftist and a centrist is, that's great. And also, if there is even the tiniest bit of movement that informs the way that they telegraph right. to the enormous audience that the Crooked Media Universe commands, then mm -hmm. I think that does a lot more work than me just screeching into the choir about how much, I don't like the Johns, and I don't like all birds, or right. whatever. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, and again, um, the last thing is about education. Because, uh, you know, unfortunately, I'm not like I, I, I like and I, I like that we're sort of steering the argument toward like, you know, doctors and nurses and lawyers and, um, you know, all of these kinds of other really like we I guess we could all agree very necessary teachers, you know, positions that's really hard to argue against um, on the left. I mean, because I'm unfortunately like the the stereotype of like, I got an English degree and I worked at Starbucks for a while. I was figuring out my life. By the way, I went to OU and I recently found out that Ole went to OU, Ohio oh, University. Yeah. yeah, we share, we share a college. Um, but like, I just, I like that you're kind of bringing this up. And again, I don't think it's necessarily the time to have that like larger philosophical argument. 
Um, but like, I like that we are still kind of like maybe further down the road, we can have this larger arg- or, or, you know, conversation mm-hmm. about just the, the necessary aspects of it. Like, I, I mean, I, and I get that people are like, well, you can read on your own and I've read on my own since I was 15 or whatever. I was reading Gramsci when I was 15 <laughs> or whatever, but, but like, I didn't. And like, I only started to learn about, you know, uh, uh, systemic racism, like my sophomore year of college when I took a sociology mm-hmm. class, you know, and I read like, and then I read Reefer Madness. I had no idea that like the entirety of the drug war was inher- was inherently racist. Like I had no idea, you know, I didn't know about Cesar Chavez. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about any of these mm-hmm. things. And like, that, I mean, it's taken me a long ass time to get here, but like, I'm a writer and I want to be a storyteller and like a journalist and all of these things inform my experience and like philosophy, you know, taking these kinds of cl- classes or meeting these kinds of people um, and, you know, engaging with other people and having like professors and there's like community there. There's a really strong sense of community that I think is valuable. So it's like, I hate that the the painting of it just it has to be only boiled down to like the very strict logistical and technical aspects of training yeah. like we should have all the we should we should highlight all of those things too and right and vocational school should also be free and should also be like community college all of that yeah. should be free but like this this idea you know how i just hate how the conversation has turned this toward college in general or education in general as like this evil elitist you know liberal thing yeah. Which of course it can be and it is in, in many ways, but like it's also extremely not, not saying everyone has to go, right? Like you should just have the choice. You should have the freedom to explore. I feel like that's really what we're arguing. Yeah, look, a hundred percent. And don't forget, like, look, I, I feel a little torn because in the, when I'm arguing to an audience that I know is kind of not anywhere near the place they need, you know. Yeah, you don't want I, I will focus on the vocational aspect and the training aspect of it. And I feel a little guilty about it because I don't ever want to be in a position where I'm I'm setting the ground for that to be the only reason why people should go to college, especially when, and I hope everybody went and read that uh, article by John Schwartz at The Intercept about the history of why we defunded public education. Um, oh, yeah, the Reagan, exactly, all that. Exactly. So all the points mm-hmm. that you're making about how it gave you a historical perspective and a perspective of what was possible and left movement and all of that. Uh, this is, you know, from the article, later in 1970, Roger Freeman, a key educational advisor to Nixon, then working for the reelection of California Governor Ronald Reagan, spelled out quite precisely mm-hmm. what the conservative counterattack was aimed at preventing. Quote, we are in danger mm-hmm. of producing an educated proletariat. <laughs> like, yep. that's the game. Yep. So all power to the people. Now we'll just power. Yeah. I know that's so cliche. No, it's so it's true. true. It's true. So true. That's why Black Panthers were, they were educating, they were reading, like all of this was part of their whole project. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. So like, I don't know, maybe, I mean, I feel now compelled to do a, to do at least one student debt radar this week, maybe two. And if there's two, like, there's so much to cover here. There, there's so, there's so many aspects of this that deserve, you know, a little 10 minute segment. So maybe I'll be able to unpack that aspect of it in a radar this week. Um, but I think you make a really solid point. I'm really glad that you called in. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say is just, you know, with regard to um, like moving forward as a movement and like utilizing our creative skills and abilities. Like I, you know, with like the Fetterman campaign, I feel like there, 
there's so much that can be done via and dark Brandon, right? Like I feel like there's so much that can be done via memeing and via like memes. I know that sounds silly, but like, I don't know. I'm just thinking about like, I'm just having ideas. I don't have anything fleshed out yet, but like, you know, perhaps there's a way that we can come together to like create some kind of, you know, videos or TikToks or things of that sort. Or if anyone wants to like brainstorm on that of like, you know, just exposing this kind of stuff and making it not so much like a kind of like a serious documentary type yeah. kind of videos, but like, you know, very funny, very short, very quippy, very engaging, meme kind of things. Cause I actually think that that stuff can be really powerful, you know, even if people think it's a little, I don't know. No, I think you're right. I, I, I wake up but, many days you know, thinking I wish I were on TikTok. I think about how that student debt video that we did for the birdie campaign went viral and, like a million views and yes in a world where i had infinite bandwidth i would have put out several student debt tiktoks this week and i have not Mm -hmm. but you know there are a lot of very capable people in the world who can cut up content and respond to videos like the like we've done on this chat responding to stuff like the bill maher clip and stuff and i hope that people do do it and i've been really heartened by the extent to which you guys have been getting together in the comments and you know, messaging sections of this app and working together. I know that mm-hmm. Ryan and you and some of the others have connected. So I hope, I hope that continues to happen. Yeah. yeah reach out to me. Cause I, and if you need to also Brie, if you need freelance work, for social media, I'm also available for that too. I know you're busy. Yeah, no, you guys are great. I, I, need, to, friends, I need to, it's the administration of actually just even hiring someone that overwhelms me, but I'm going to get it together. I promise I'm on the mm-hmm. precipice of getting it together. Right. Our, yeah. Well, good. Good to talk. It was so good to talk. I really appreciate you. As always, I will see you on Thursdays. This has been a great chat. You guys are terrific. I I know that there were some mixed feelings about this episode in the Patreon comments. I guess none of those people showed up here, but um, I thought it was productive and a different kind of conversation than I've heard before. So onward and upward. As always, let me know your suggestions. I love to hear them and keep the faith. Completely naked, drink my beer and smoke my weed. But my good friends is all I need. Pass out at three, wake up at ten, go out to eat, then do it again. Man, I'm gonna go to college for the rest of my life. Sit Bankers Club and drink Miller Lite. On Thirsty Thursday and Tuesday night ice. And now I can get pizza a dollar a slice. So fill up my cup. Let's get fucked up. I'm next on the table. Who want what? I am champion at Beer Pong. Alan Iverson, Akeem Olajuwon. Don't even bounce. Not in my house. Better hope you make it. Otherwise you naked. Time isn't wasted when you're getting wasted. Woke up today and all I can say is um that party last night was awfully crazy i wish we taped it i wish we taped it i danced my ass off and had this one girl completely naked drink my beer and smoke my weed but my good friends is all i need pass out at three wake up at ten go out to eat then do it again man i love college hey. i love drinking tell you what I learned from school, but I can tell you a story or two. Um, like, yeah, of course I learned some rules, like don't pass out with your shoes on. 
And don't leave the house till the booze gone And don't have sex if she's too gone When it comes to condoms, put two on Then tomorrow night, find a new joint Hold the beer bong, nothing wrong with some fun Even if we did get a little bit too drunk Time isn't wasted when you're getting wasted Woke up today and all I can say is That party last night was awfully crazy I wish we taped it I danced my ass off and had this one girl completely naked Drink my beer and smoke my weed But my good friends is all I need Pass out three, wake up at ten Go out to eat, then do it again Man, I love college Everybody would please put their drink.